Welcome to SkyCast episode 35, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 6, episode 6, Memento Mori. Yes, we will. But before we do that, <laughs> I think we need to dedicate a special moment on this episode to discuss the greatest thing that has ever happened in all time. Um, Beliza. Beliza. Bob the- Marley and Eliza Taylor. <laughs> Out of the blue, announced that well, they were married. not out of the blue for them, but... I'm saying to <laughs> the public, out of the blue, announced that they were married last month, and I think I died and went to heaven, guys. I really am... It's been a, over a week, and I quite can't... Quite can't wrap my brain around what's, what's real and what's not real. I think I'm living in fan fiction. I'm not sure if we all just, like, collectively brought this happening into the universe... Needless to say, I've never been this happy in my entire life. That's and sad. No, it's not. I'm <laughs> so happy. I'm so excited for them. And I'm so happy that even after being gaslit for six years, we were right. Vindication. Yes, it is very exciting. Uh, quite possibly the, the most shocking event of the 21st century I thus far. I would have to agree with that assessment, yeah. Um... Brit saw it first. She was on the phone and she had just come home and I saw that she sent me something online. And so I was like in the middle of like clicking on it when she's like, I, 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 I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta talk to Sarah about something. And I read it and I first thought it was a joke. I'm pretty sure like everyone thought, thought it was a I joke. I thought it was a joke. Well, I thought it was a joke. And then I was like, wait, did they get hacked? Yeah. But after a moment, we're both like staring at this Brit comes in. And just drops to the floor. And I kid you not, guys, she starts crying. <laughs> I did. I started crying. And then I never went to bed. I was up. Um, I, by the way, I hung up on my parents. And I lied to them. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Uh, I lied to them. I told them I had to talk to Sarah about some plans in the Hamptons. Because I couldn't formulate into words what was happening online. <laughs> Made it like two feet before I just collapsed into the fetal position. And started crying on the floor like a child. Um, and then we stayed up, I stayed up researching, I, I dug into their publicist's social media accounts, I started searching on LinkedIn for their publicist's, like, names, I waited until 4am when People Magazine wrote an article about it, because People doesn't, um, publish anything that isn't substantiated, so once People says it's, it's, like, it's true, it's true, it's actually verified, like, they have, like, publicist permission to print. Um, so I waited until four o'clock in the morning for that piece to come through. And when it did, tears of joy again, cried again, texted Sarah from the other room that I was crying again. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) Here we are. Uh, Guys, I'm so happy. I hope you're as happy as we are. I like, I have been fans of these actors on the show for six years. They have such incredible chemistry. The idea that they think of each other as their soulmates, the way that they play it on screen it's like a fairy tale come true, and I can't, I can't contain it. I cannot contain my joy. As you can see, Britt's the one who's been talking throughout all of this. She's not letting me get a word in. <laughs> I, I can't stop. Like, please interrupt me at any moment. Um, but no, it's it's really wonderful and really exciting, and I'm very happy for them. Um, and it's also just like. It's so hard to believe. It took me a really long time to, like, actually believe it. I'm having – I I'm still – there's, like, a very small part of me that I'm just – I sort of, like, sit back and look, and I'm like, 
I can't quite <laughs> believe this is real. Yeah, we, we've definitely slipped into like a parallel universe, it feels. Yeah, for sure. And I just <laughs> want to say thank you to everyone who wished this into being. I'm not sure how, what genie magic spell this is, but I'm going to just go with it. So also congrats, huge congratulations to Bob and Eliza. Like, so Yeah, and I hope they just like stay off the internet and stay away from the crazies yeah. because people are nuts. People are insane <laughs> and horrible. Um, I know none of our wonderful listeners are doing any of this horrible behavior, but I hope that they just go honeymoon, enjoy their time together. They are soulmates. And so, so happy about that. Okay. okay. Let's move on. Well, we're going to move on. I'm sorry. I just like have been waiting to talk about this on the podcast for like over a week now. I know someone um, on Twitter had asked us if we would do like a little special. And I was like, dude, I don't think Brit, I don't think Brit could like actually talk about it right now. I was now. not physically capable of speaking at, at the day that it happened. And then I went on tour. I went on an author tour for a week and gushed about it to random strangers for five straight days. So <laughs> I am sorry. I apologize to everybody who I've interacted with in the last week about this. Okay, moving on. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about this episode. Yes. Um, what do we think about this episode? Uh, I really, really liked this episode. Me too. I won't say it's one of my favorites of the season, Mm -hmm. but I really did. I did. I enjoyed almost every second of it. We'll talk about the parts I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, I think they can guess which parts we did enjoy. Um, But I will say that just because this season has been such a high caliber of excellence, um, even episodes that I think would qualify as like one of the greatest episodes in another season still fall lower on this on the scale Mm -hmm. this season in particular because it's all been so good and so strong and so I think there a lot happened in this episode and there was a lot of momentum both in character development and in plot yeah I Uh, was gonna say I think this episode really delves into a couple of plots that I've been really excited to see mm -hmm. um and not not delves in exactly but introduces Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I I just don't think there's as much meat on the bones of this episode like there's a there's a clear-cut framework and a beautiful execution of that framework but it's not as juicy as some other episodes but it still is a delicious meal it is possible that we won't be you know talking for three hours on this one i don't know i just spent 20 we'll minutes on Eliza, so who knows? anyway um before we get into the episode i did want to give a shout out to at ken one red on twitter um who asked us to get into some of the costuming choices this season. Um, I'm going to save this for the end of the episode um, because I have a lot to say about it. And literally at any given moment in my life, I'm just waiting for somebody to ask me about <laughs> costuming. So I was going to say, Britt has been really waiting for this moment. Yeah, this, this is her this moment. <laughs> this is my time to shine. Um, in another life, I think I would have been a costume designer. In fact, I thought I was going to be one at a certain point in my life. Um, and I'm really, really obsessed with costuming. So we'll save that till the end of the episode. Um, just as like, a little morsel if if you're interested because I know not everyone cares about this as deeply as I do not even me (laughs) no I know my cape's probably gonna take her headphones off and like go (laughs) to the other room um yeah so we'll save that for the end of the episode and then before we get into the recap one more really really lovely shout out and thank you to um Matt Cottle for giving us a beautiful review on iTunes um thank you thank thank you we appreciate it so much Um, This also reminds me to remind all of you to go rate and review us on iTunes right now. It helps other fans of The 100 Cohen find us. So go do that right now. We really appreciate it. Obviously, like it means the world to us as well. So thank you in advance. And with that, I will kick it over to McCabe and we'll do the recap. Let's jump in. Murphy is teaching Josephine how to fool Abby into thinking she's Clark. 
Josephine recites all the things Clark has done in the last five and a half seasons, and she admits, thankfully, that Clark was freaking awesome. Although, Murphy adds that she was, unless you got in her way. They hear Maddie screaming, and Murphy pushes Josephine to go check on her as a dress rehearsal for pretending to be Clark. Huh. Hmm. Uh, first <laughs> off, I loved this scene, and I especially loved looking at all the uh, flashcards from the last five seasons of The Hundred. That was particularly um, joyful for me to see. Are you talking about, like, wait, was there actual flashcards? Yes, they have flashcards of, like, the faces. Oh, of- I saw those. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. I mean, obviously. Sorry, I thought you were. I thought maybe you no, like, they don't have like index cards. <laughs> what happened? Oh yeah, Clark murdered a bunch of people. <laughs> Each season has its own <laughs> set of index cards. They're color coded. No, I just meant the people's faces. Okay, I but gotcha. um, but I still I loved all the like flashback stuff. It, it was great. Yeah, I I will say I feel. So here's the thing. I hate Josephine. She's the worst. I mean, like, I hate to love her kind of, you know, Yeah, hate. she's a delightful villain. But at least Josephine is acknowledging how awesome Clark is. Right? Because our people aren't. I know. That was so satisfying yeah. and refreshing for, like, a total stranger without their personal biases. With absolutely no opinion in the matter whatsoever. Um, actually acknowledge objectively, like, she's a badass. She is a and badass. And that is not up for dispute. Um, I did kind of expect Murphy to be, like, a little bit sadder about Clark than he's acting. Yeah, I mean, I think this is interesting, too, because I, I kind of hear what you're saying, but on the other hand, I'm kind of like, is he just, like, embracing, like, his full cockroach mode? Like, he's just, like, there's no room for sentimentality here. He's just, like, this is the path I've chosen. I'm committing to it. I mean, I feel like he could have committed to the path and still showed a little bit more, like, Emotion. sadness like the whole thing about like oh yeah unless you get in Clark's way like yeah. dude Clark is she's dead. dead or you think she's dead yeah um and like you couldn't you know muster up a little bit of sympathy here for her absolutely I 100% agree with you on that that's a that was a weird take from him um I did want to call out this like really interesting conversation that Murphy and Josephine agree- engage in about godliness and immortality um they're kind of taking for granted that that this equals the other right so that like just because they're immortal suddenly it makes them gods um I think Murphy is talking about it in a joking manner but Josephine clearly believes this with like her entire being and that her superior intellect and her family's ability to create or synthesize immortality um technical technologically has like literally given her the ascendance to godliness um which I just think is an interesting thing because it's not true uh they're just privileged and psychopaths um but well she is at least i mean i think at this point it's safe to say that they're deluded themselves into i mean some i think you can be deluded and not be psychopaths i don't think most of them are what i would consider psychopaths which i think denotes a certain lack of empathy yeah the rest of them are just lying to themselves basically to like yeah stop their guilt well either way i do think it's interesting the way that she takes for granted the idea of that immortality equates to godliness just as a matter of fact which i think it's a lot more complicated than that and clearly this is another way of them manifesting their idea of their own self-worth and and importance in this society which i mean the question is like what makes a god you know right exactly i mean they have power over people they do have immortality they are definitely working on a different level as the people in their society um well, you know true. for better or worse but i think that i think in i think in a in a textual level godliness or godhood like inherently 
requires some level of divinity um, and they don't have it. I mean, they, they're, they're from humans. They are, they've sprung from humanity. They have created their own sense of, of godhood. Um, you know, it's a structure. Like, I mean, like any other religion is a structure. I'm not taking value away from that. But like, I think the idea of immortality and godliness should have some sort of divinity, which they are preaching to their flock. The people think that they have some divinity and that's why they are accepting of the way that they sacrifice their children. Um, but that's not actually true. Just playing the devil's advocate Sure, go here. for it. That's why we have a podcast. Was that a pun? The devil's advocate for godliness? <laughs> <laughs> um, but what really means divinity? Because they, honestly, I would not consider them human anymore. I, you know, I think the question becomes is do they have a soul or not? And like, that's something that like each person has to answer for themselves. Some people believe in souls some people don't. Um, these people have copied their brains onto computer hard drives. So does that mean that this is still them or does that mean they've like transcended to something else to, to, to machine? a different being? Um, I don't know. I mean, just from the way I think about life, I, I can't even answer this for myself. I don't know if I believe in a soul, but I also don't know if I would believe that a copy is still you. I, I think I would lean toward yes for me, but I think like it like the copy like is still them. Like if it's an exact copy of you, yeah. then it's still you. But a lot of people would say the opposite. So Well, I think it all comes back to the title of this episode, Memento Mori, right? Which is a reflection, which is this idea of the... I'll get into this later, but it's basically, uh, to sum up, is a reflection... Um, of your own mortality and like surrounding yourselves with objects that remind you of your own mortality and, and a and a um, and a focus on things of that remind you of your own mortality. Um, and I think as long as, and what were we just watching where they were talking about memory is your it was this it was this it show. Was this. <laughs> I was like, what are we just talking about? What do this. we ever watch? <laughs> it was Jordan. <laughs> this is literally my life. Um, so it was Jordan talking about how all we are are our memories. And I think that that is selfhood, right? Um, and if you have a copy of your memories, that that's still yourself, even if it's not in your same vessel, uh, then that still transcends into the same or doesn't transcend into a different being. Yeah. Um, was it Jordan? When was Jordan talking about that? Was it not Jordan? I don't know. I feel like we were watching something else yeah. recently because then we like turned to each other and we were like, that's a very, like the hundred like thing. What were we just watching? I about don't this? know. Oh crap. We'll come back to okay. this. <laughs> was it Killing Eve? No. That's all we watched lately. Um, I'll think about this. Okay. We'll, we'll we back. watched something else. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yeah. sorry Moving for that on. little sidetrack there. But yeah, your memories do make who you are. And is there like anything of you that is salvageable if your memories are gone? Right. Why are we even like? What did we talk about? We're, we're going to start about godliness, godliness and immortality. And, and I was like, saying, and you were asking if like if you're like technologically advanced into another creation, does that mean you have turned yourself into a god? And I don't think so because I think yourself is is measured by your memories. And I don't know. This is a really philosophical debate. <laughs> but I mean, I love that the hundred kind of prompts these discussions. And you know, I I don't know if I agree it was with you. Game of Thrones. It was Sam, right? Tarly, talking about at the dinner at the round table at storm's watch it was it was game of thrones sorry guys 
<laughs> I knew I would get there. Got like our wires crossed yeah, there. But I, but I was right. It was something. But I don't mean I wouldn't call them gods, but I'm not sure if I agree that they have not become some sort of higher creation. They're something else. They are something else. That's an arrow <laughs> shout out. Anybody didn't get that? <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. moving on. Fun times. Um, are we surprised that Murphy knows about the issues between like Clark and her mom about um, her mom turning in her father? Because... I feel like it was odd that that specific situation was something that he knew. It's not like Clark talks about it a lot or Abby. Yeah, I think this is like a little bit of like retconning. Yeah, (laughs) retconning or like maybe we're just supposed to infer that this is like public knowledge at this point or someone else has been talking about this. You know, I feel like they trash talk Clark a lot. Yeah. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) they really do. Poor Clark. Poor Clark. Um, But I also, I think without knowing the nitty gritty details, I think there's a lot you can infer by the way Clark talks about her parents and the way she acts about her dad to her mother that Murphy's observed like tangentially that he can pick up on. I mean, he's really good at reading people and he's really good at picking up on things that you, you can use against somebody. Um, I mean, obviously, we haven't seen everything that's happened to them. I mean, we have because they're fake people. But, like, let's say this was, like, a real story going on. We've only seen, you know, a select part of it. Yeah. Um, But the part we have seen, you know, Clark and her mom got over the whole father issue in season two. And Murphy wasn't around that season. Um, So, because he was in the City of Light with Jaha. Yeah. So, I don't know. I have a hard time... Following this, this definitely feels like the writer's hands kind of, you know, wanting him to say something that he wouldn't actually know. But yeah, I can let that go. And giving Josephine the ammo that she needs when she's facing Abby. Right. Um, This is all a little bit contrived in like a nice, neat package. Um, But I'm willing to go with it because I feel like Murphy has shown the skills and he's earned it enough to to where I would believe that he would pick up on these kinds of things and then Mm -hmm. use it against his fellow sky crew you know we've seen him do this a countless number of times so i can i can buy it i'll stretch stretch the <laughs> belief a little bit here um also i just have to say i love all the callbacks that we're getting from all of the previous seasons of the hundred this is like a fun ride to go on like from season all the previous seasons like all remember becca's lab remember um remember when cannibalism we, cannibalism right? yeah great <laughs> remember the dark year like this is really fun and i like when the show remembers itself yeah uh it's fun for me when they nod back to previous things previously on the hundred yeah becca's lab cannibalism <laughs> the dad thing <laughs> yeah remember so, the apocalypse both of them <laughs> yeah which one <laughs> So Josephine finds Maddie talking to herself, seemingly in her sleep. Gaia tries to stop Josephine from waking Maddie since she's communing with the commanders, but Josephine doesn't or but Josephine does it anyway. She tells Maddie it wasn't real, it was just a nightmare, which confuses both Gaia and Maddie. Gaia is furious that Josephine woke her, as it could have damaged her mind, but Josephine brushes her off. Maddie kicks them both out of her room, and when she's alone, she sees Shade Hedda staring out at her from her mirror. Bum bum bum. So this is like an interesting scene to me because um, Josephine at this point is playing Clark. People know she's playing Clark, but Gaia and Maddie don't know she's playing Clark. And Josephine uh, really, I think, could have had an out here with Gaia being like, don't wake her. She's communing with the commanders. Josephine could have been like, well, okay, peace. Right. Now Um, I don't have to interact with Maddie and prove myself to her. But she chose to like wake her up. 
I'm not going to let her suffer, quote unquote, um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I'm having not a hard time reading it, but I guess my question for you is like, do we think she like legitimately was not wanting to see Maddie suffer or oh, why no, no. do we think she woke her up? I think she woke her up for two reasons. Um, the first is that I genuinely think she was getting annoyed with the screaming. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, like, no, that's that's actually what I thought too. I think she's like tired of listening to her scream and has like no patience for anybody, but especially a child, which she doesn't understand. And also, I think she's you know she's super egotistical, and I think she wanted a challenge. I think she wanted to prove to herself that she could pass this test, that um, she could get Maddie to believe that she really was Clark before she went and tested it out on her own mother. Um, yeah, I think it was purely selfish reasons. Yeah, I I feel the same. Definitely tired of the screaming. Also, I think it would have looked weirder if Clark had just left than if in, in Josephine's mind than yeah. if Clark had like comforted her daughter and well, then right. left. <laughs> this is like her version of comforting. She's like, I'll just pull her out of this. Yeah. Thing. She's, she's like, like, I don't have time for this. Wake up, Maddie. Yeah. You're dreaming. <laughs> it, was, it was not well done. It was very clumsy. Um, my question, because I also, this scene was really interesting to me too. Do we think Gaia is starting to put the pieces together about Clark here or she's just like really confused? She seems suspicious, like especially when Josephine walks down the stairs and is like telling Murphy to like shut up. Yeah. And Gaia's like watching her, but I can't tell if she's like actually putting the pieces together or she's just like, what is going on? I don't think she's putting the pieces together, not in the way that we see Echo do later. Okay. Um, I definitely think she's like suspicious and confused. Mm-hmm. Um but I also don't think Gaia knows Clark as well as other people do. So Gaia might not realize that this is just very much not Clark at all. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm curious how it would damage Maddie to pull her out of this, like, dream space that she's got going on. Yeah. We have, we've never really heard that before. I don't know. I, there's a lot about the way that the flame interacts with the human brain that we don't know and I think if you're like in that level of like deep consciousness or unconsciousness you know maybe it's like there are like neurons or like synapses that could get fried or something I don't know we're like talking about a technology that doesn't exist so there's like some hand waviness (laughs) that happens here sure but didn't am I remembering this correctly didn't Clark wake up Lexa at one point when Lexa was having the like communing with the commander's dreams although Clark didn't know it at the time I there was there was a scene when Clark was drawing Lexa in her sleep and then Lexa was like talking in her sleep. I thought Clark woke her up, but maybe she didn't. I don't think so. I think Lexa woke up. Okay. Having only watched that season once, once and probably I'm only not ever the authority once. on that. So if you guys have a, a better memory or callback of that, let us know. Um, but I, I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think it was kind of an interesting juxtaposition in this episode between Josephine waking Maddie up here against Gaia's orders and Echo killing the man uh, later on in this episode against Jade's orders. Mm. They're both kind of this person who's not part of the culture of the other two people like going against something in their culture, doing what they think is right or best at least. Yeah. Um, And obviously we're on Echo's side and we're not on Josephine's side, I hope. Right, exactly, and it's a total matter of perspective, right? Yeah. And, and the perspective of our what who we perceive as our heroes and who we perceive as our enemies, which yeah. gets us back to an interesting s- statement that Josephine makes later about we're the heroes of our own story, which we'll get to in a bit. Very quickly. Um. <laughs> um, and last, of course, Shade had us like a creepy motherfucker, you know? Oh, my God. What's... We'll get into it. I... I he I, is so disturbing. I keep... I mean, we, we talked in a few episodes ago about 
possibly Dioza knowing him. Yeah. Which I still think that was, you know, an important moment when she kind of had her ears perk up. Mm-hmm. But who the hell is this guy and what is wrong with, like, what and happened like, to him? And, what's wrong with his voice? Like, his voice is, like, all modulated and everything. Like, it's a weird, creepy is voice. Is it modulated? Yeah. It's, it's hard to tell when they're speaking in trig. Um, no, it's it's not, like, a regular voice. It's, like, a weird, creepy, like, demon voice. The pits of despair. Yes. <laughs> Josephine is flipping through her sky clear. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we're, we're still really early in the episode and I'm already getting tongue-tied. <laughs> Josephine is flipping through her Sky Crew flashcards when Echo, Amori, and Raven return. Jordan has already told them about the body snatching and they're all horrified. Raven wants to leave, but Josephine says they still need to learn how to build a radiation shield. Josephine then tells Echo that Bellamy left on a scouting mission and Echo goes to find him while Raven and Amori head to Riker's workshop. Murphy discovers that Bellamy already knows that Josephine isn't Clark, and Josephine convinces him to try to get Bellamy on their side, or she'll have to kill him. Um, first off, what was Murphy dreaming about? He's like, it wasn't me! And I love that they can always depend on Richard Harmon as providing, like, the good comic relief. But I also think it's interesting in this context, it's just, like, kind of telling about how guilty he's feeling right now. <laughs> um... I mean, I think he. I don't think that's that's really what was going on, but I like I like putting it into that context in his dream. I'll be honest, I didn't even realize this. You know, both times I watched it, I didn't hear him say that. Oh so. man, it was really funny. <laughs> I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> it is honestly a little bit sad that none of Sky Crew here can figure out that Clark isn't Clark because Josephine is terrible at acting like Clark. I mean, this is what's so fascinating about personhood, right? Is that like when you you could categorize somebody. Till they're you're blue in the face, where you could give you could give a person a catalog of all of their f- positions on something, their feelings, their attitudes, um, you know what they like, what they dislike, but that doesn't equal a person, you know. And it's it's like one thing to like teach Josephine who Clark is, but it's another thing for Josephine to actually embody like what Clark is, mm-hmm. and those that the the gulf between those things is enormous and glaringly obvious and it's unbelievable that nobody in this room after learning what they just learned isn't like odd you're not acting like a clerk like we knew yeah i mean that's the thing is i think before i could have forgiven it because they didn't know but now it's like you literally just found out about this and clerk here is being like oh yeah, Bellamy is just having a really hard time. It hit him hard knowing that we're with some body snatchers. Yeah, it really lit a fire under him. <laughs> he ran off on his own with no one by himself. <laughs> like, out of everyone, does it sound like Clark? Clark, his soulmate Clark. <laughs> and everyone, let's be real. Everyone Everybody. at this table knows that. <laughs> Even Echo. Yeah, she's very aware of it. She's also, she's like, you let him go alone? Yeah, that's shocking. I... But I mean, like, and let's talk about Raven, because I think out of everyone, Raven knows Clark, out of everyone at this table besides Murphy, who already knows that Clark is not Clark, um, but out out of everyone else, Raven knows Clark the best, and in my opinion, the only reason that she's not realizing that Clark is not Clark right now is because she's really pissed at her. Yeah, and also constantly looking... Um, she wants justification to be angry. Yeah, she's looking for the bad things in Clark. Mm-hmm. And this version of Clark seems to work really well within that framework. This, like, super callous version. Yeah. Um. But, 
yeah, when uh, Josephine's like, we're all ashamed of the things that we've done and Raven snaps back and is like I haven't she says we've all done things that we're not proud of that we're not proud of to survive right and Raven snaps back well I haven't which is wrong very wrong I mean the question that I'm trying to you know ask myself is does Raven truly believe this or does she want to believe this I mean, does she want to believe this because she wants to be on her high horse or does she truly believe it because she is on her high horse? I think she's in denial. I don't think denial is a permanent state of being, though. Mm-hmm. So I think in this particular moment, it's easier for her to deny the that what she's complicit in doing in the last five seasons, six seasons. Um, but I don't think it's going to stay that way. This is not a permanent stasis. So we'll see. I mean, we've talked about this before, but... You know, Raven has done things, but I think her biggest sins are her not doing things, you know? Like, the way I always think about it, or the thing I always think about when I'm thinking about the bad things that Raven has done, or the times that Raven has let me down, um, was that scene in Becca's lab when they were going to experiment on Amori, and Raven is like, I don't like this, but she just, like, lets Lets it it happen. happen. She doesn't try to stop anybody. She just kind of, like, allows it to happen. And, you know, like Jackson was saying a couple of episodes ago, that still makes you complicit. Letting things happen still makes you guilty. Absolutely. But there are even smaller cases. I mean, we don't have time to go into the litany of things that Raven has done in the name of the people she loves. But there are plenty where you could point the thing. I mean, she made a bomb in, like, the first three episodes of The 100 that blew up a bridge that could have been used to blow up lots of people and kill them i mean like she did again she helped make the hydro hydro whatever bomb hydrazine bomb that killed all those grounders in season one like she has murdered people she has created things to kill people and sure it was war and there is there is a level i mean not saying that she was wrong 100 percent, but again this is a morally gray area and if you're going to be on your high horse and scream at people and condescend to them about the sins that they've committed, then you need to be pretty damn sure that your slate is completely clean, which hers is not. Yeah, I mean, again, we've talked about this before, but Raven's never had to pull the lever, so to speak. Right. Um, And I'm really actually hoping that this season she might have to in some way. Yeah, I really hope so too. I'm not sure. Just like with the with the theme of this season, I'm not sure if there will be a lever to pull. I hope so because I, I honestly kind of like a yeah, good lever I, metaphor. I love me <laughs> and I love the tradition of it. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe it can be employed in like a new way. <laughs> um, I, I will say I'm curious though how Raven's interactions were with Riker before she found this out because they were like on their little day trip together yesterday and you know they were like a little bit flirty we saw a couple of episodes ago but um I'm curious if that also leads to part of her like really extreme hurt and and you know anger here is that like she was starting to like this person she thought he was interesting and he was smart and he's obviously attractive um and then of course she finds out he's a body snatcher so yeah I mean that's a double whammy there um, it's rough, She's girl. having a really hard couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> her boyfriend dies, and her new boyfriend turns out to be a body snatcher. Her boyfriend dies one day later. Her new boyfriend that she meets <laughs> becomes a body snatcher. Yeah. Um, but I did, I did want to call out there a couple more things that we should talk about in this scene. One is that Murphy's reaction when he learns that Josephine already caught Bellamy is devastating. I mean, it's clear how much he loves him in this one unguarded moment. I mean, the 
the terror on his face is pure and real and genuine. Um, and I love that. I love that they televise that. I think it's really important that he's not soulless. He's not just a reptile. Like, he has feelings. They're there. You know, he may be mad at Clark, but I think that his friendship and his love for Bellamy is unwavering and solid. <laughs> and it will never go away after last season. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a little curious, had Bellamy not come up yet? Because, like, if you're going to fool Bellamy, you got to do better than Josephine's been doing. You know what I mean? I yeah, mean, like, it was... Obviously, it's true because we already saw that she did not fool him. <laughs> yeah, it took about 45 seconds <laughs> for him to figure it out. Um, Yeah, no, I was wondering about that, too. I was like, Murphy, did you just, like, forget to ask where Bellamy was this yeah. time? I don't know. We'll let that slide. And then also, like I was talking about earlier, there's this really interesting line um, that Josephine says to Murphy where she's like, we're all the hero of our own story, John. Um, And I thought this was fascinating because this is like so inherently like the hundred language. Like this is language we're so used to hearing that I think sometimes we don't question like who it's coming from. But I think we have to in this case because I don't think Josephine actually believes this. I don't think that she ever for a second thinks of herself as like a hero. Thinks her, she thinks of herself as a god, which is a very different thing. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering if she's like already starting to mimic the language that Murphy's been using in order to manipulate Murphy as well. Like throughout this scene, like he is teaching her these tools and she's now using them back at him, like within the span of like 45 minutes I mean that's like the definition of a psychopath yeah so or at least a sociopath I mean like that's like we see her do this all the time right like she she mimics things that other people do in order to like get close to them um I will say like that line makes me call the way back to last season when Maddie was like Clark you told me all these stories and you were never the hero but really like it was you who was the hero all along and and Clark is like no Maddie I'm not a hero like yeah I love this idea that like Clark thinks of herself as like a supporting character in her own life and like of course Josephine thinks of herself as like the only important character and everyone else is her pawn you know sure yeah that's such a great point and also that like it's so funny that that Clark thinks of herself as a supporting character when there's literally an entire show built around her (laughs) well that's why she's so interesting is because she you know again is the one to pull the lever every single time and yet she still relegates herself to a supporting role in her own mind Mm -hmm. um i think because she's so guilty about the things that she's had to do to save people yeah like she she can't let herself take center stage in her mind yeah i think that's a really good point Bellamy is chained in Josephine's room when Murphy is brought in. Murphy tells him that they tried to offer him a deal to agree not to retaliate in exchange for helping them to build their own compound. Bellamy tells Murphy that Clark cared about him, she cared about all of them, and that instead of building their own compound, they should kill everyone in Sanctum and then take their compound. I'm into it. I just love this version of Bellamy so much. We were so excited to see Murder Bellamy back. <laughs> oh my god, so great. The, the thing is, though, like the thing throughout this whole episode is I really wanted to see Bellamy wanting to murder everyone. I do not want to see Bellamy murdering everyone. There, there you go. And that, they, again, the execution on this was chef's kiss perfect. Yeah. Like he, I just wanted to see him so upset that he would want to murder people. The idea of murder was appealing to yeah. him, which is absolutely valid. Yeah. They just killed his soulmate. Um, his, I mean, like, his face was so swollen. Like, he really did look like he'd been crying for hours, you know? I'm sure Bob was. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, 
Bob and Murphy, uh, or sorry, Bob and Richard and Eliza were all sick in filming this episode. Mm. Um, and I think Bob had it the easiest because he was supposed to look kind of sickly. Yeah, you know? he's supposed to look like snotty and swollen. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe Murphy. He <laughs> Method Murphy, acting. Murphy's also not looking too hot this episode, but Clark, or I mean, uh, well, Eliza slash Josephine in this episode had to be on point. Yeah. Um, and that would be really hard to do when you're sick. I'm always really impressed with, you know, you hear those stories about like, oh, yeah, this actor was really sick during this filming. And I'm like, when I'm really sick, I just don't get out of bed. I mean, I like didn't get out of bed for the last 48 hours. I have a cold in case you can't tell my voice is disgusting. Um, I'm sick again. Shock. Um, yeah, but I, I will say, getting back to this scene, it was incredibly difficult to watch. I mean, Bob's acting, as always, was amazing, and his grief seemed so real, and I honestly can't imagine how hard it was for them to film this, you know, just getting into the mindset of your... Well, knowing what we know now, I'm like, sorry, guys, I can't divorce this anymore. Like, this, I bring all of it back into it, right? Like, they're married, and he had to, like, think about what it would be like for her to die like yeah. that would be really hard to do well also they weren't married at this point so I'm curious like when they started dating because I don't remember when they started filming this season but they hadn't been dating that long before they got at least this time well this just, time around they hadn't been dating long before they got married I just we don't I have no idea no, we don't know their backstory yeah um, I don't know how long or in what way or what they consider dating and yeah, I'm just saying, we don't know at what level or stage of their relationship this was filmed, um, and I don't think it necessarily matters, but no. I did think it was kind of interesting that, like, it was around this time that they would have started dating, and it's I... Fun, it's fun to speculate that it was, like, this kind of thing where he's, like, thinking in his mind, like, what if she was dead that would, like, spur them to, like, finally... Pure speculation. Pure speculation. Like, this is obviously my <laughs> fan fiction in my head, which I love. Um, <laughs> but my headcanon is this. <laughs> um, I did love that Bellamy, like, destroyed this room. He, like, kicked over some easels. He looks like he, like, put a hand through Josephine's face painting. <laughs> oh, my God. So great. I, I appreciate it. And I wonder how much of that was, like, set dressing or how much of it they, like, worked with Bob to do, you know? like. Well, that was also a question of mine because apparently this episode was so long they had to cut 15 minutes of it. Um, and it was still excellent. And it was still great. But I wonder, like, what did they cut? Did they cut scenes? Like, for example, Bob slash Bellamy destroying this room? Or did they cut, like little pieces of each scene yeah so like, like trim so like all the scenes are the same but like they're just kind of cut down a little bit yeah they just trim the fat off yeah. of them they make them leaner yeah, i don't I'm know sh- i'm probably it's a combination of both i don't think you can squeeze 15 minutes out of, of trimming fat um that's, i mean that's a lot to cut down it's a lot so i'm sure they had to cut i'm gonna guess at least one or two full scenes and then trim down the fat from there can because we- one or two full scenes just like to give you guys context would be probably no longer than five or six minutes tops that's like the longest scene ever filmed in the history of the hundred is like five minutes um well the longest scene ever filmed in the history of the hundred was last season i know that wasn't five minutes it was like like 10 minutes it was like six and a half minutes it was it was 10 it was like the entire like third third act act or second act i think the entire second act anyway so if you imagine that was like an extraordinary circumstance most most scenes are, are between like four to six minutes um and even if you did all of that, even if you cut two of those, that's still only eight minutes and they cut 15. So I'm well, sure they had to cut multiple scenes. What I want to know is when do we get the director's cut sure. of this episode? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to need that. Yeah. Tonight. 
<laughs> also, just like I love, I love that with the idea of Clark being dead, Bellamy has reverted back to his like purely emotional heart. Bellamy like yeah. he is no longer capable of using his head and nor should he I mean this is clearly what Bob meant when he said that like season one Bellamy was what Bellamy was going to kind of revert back into this season. yeah um and in season one he was single-mindedly uh focused on saving his sister protecting his sister and now it seems like it's all about protecting or saving Clark um thank god amen it's time uh but I love it. You know, so, it's season so one great. Bellamy was like a, a cut unto his own. He really, you know, I kind of laugh about it sometimes. I recently watched the first episode again with my one of my other best friends and her husband. And they were like making all these like little comments about like, oh, yeah, I can tell this like Murphy dude who's not even named in the show. They're like, I can tell this dude is evil. He looks evil. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, they're not wrong. No. <laughs> And there, they said something about Bellamy too. It was like, oh, like this guy, like you know, he needs to chill out. Or I don't, I don't remember what they said, but I just kept thinking like, the Bob or the the Bellamy, the Bellamy <laughs> that we see in episode one and in season one is so different than we get in any other season. And I always kind of thought he was putting on airs, like he was trying to be much cooler than he really oh, yeah. was. And yeah. I loved it. Yeah, no, he he like fooled us all into thinking he was just like kind of a bad boy. Like he was like, no one knows me here. I'm gonna yeah. be the three. Sometime. It's like he went to a new school and yeah. like got a whole new added person. But then like six months later, he was like, okay, actually, I read Odysseus and I'm a huge nerd. But like, <laughs> I care about two people in the whole universe. One of them's Octavia and the other one's Clark, and that's pretty much it. Well, then then I have all my children. Right, so. and all my my space all of dads. my 100 space so, children. So yeah, no, he's a very different person, but I. I love him. I love that he is revert. I mean, like all of the like layers that he has accumulated and and this and the personal growth that he has endured over the last few seasons have just been stripped away and he is back to being old Rob Bellamy. <laughs> it was hard to see Bellamy like eulogizing Clark in yeah. the scene. It sounded like what you would say when someone dies and you're talking about them at their funeral. They're like, oh yeah, they were such a good person. They really loved you. I mean, not that it's wrong in this no, case. No, it's not like, untrue. Clark does, she, you know, does care about Bellamy. She does care about all of them and Murphy. Um, but it just felt like such an odd tone. Like, he, I mean, like we obviously know he really does believe she's dead, but I've never heard Bellamy sound like this before. Yeah. It was really sad, and and again, it, it's that um, it's that description of her that is like it leaves out all of the negative qualities. Yeah, yeah, he's you know, choosing it's just to the positive, the best parts of her. Yeah. Also, Murphy's cockroachness is just like on full display here. He like walks in, he gets thrown in there, he's rolling on the floor. Oh, let me get this knife, and we'll chisel our way out of here. Like, oh, yeah, you're acting, man. Woo! <laughs> Academy Award. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I would be so fucking pissed if I were Bellamy. Bellamy was. I know. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I was pissed. Um, I did love the whole transition of, you know, where's Bledrina when you need her? And then it, like, flips to this cave, and it's like, she's in a cave. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I really liked that, like, really cheesy it transition. It was very cheesy, but I'm into it. Uh, Dioza and Octavia, speaking of, have tracked Xavier into a bioluminescent cave. They find him, but before they can do anything, Octavia falls to the ground and starts screaming. The aging on her hand is spreading. Xavier says he can help her, but he'll need to return to the place where the temporal flare hits. Dioza agrees to go with him, but tells him that after he heals Octavia, he's taking them to Gabriel. 
Yes. So, um, first off, I'm so into this bioluminescent cave. It's really given me some, like, romance. It's just really pretty. Like, anytime I see bioluminescence, I'm always like, ooh, this is pretty. And I wouldn't mind if uh, Xavier and Octavia found themselves back in this cave in some future time. Just I gonna- do want to say, Marie gave an interview this this week, I think, um, where she was like, Octavia is not ready for a love interest this season. Like, this is all about learning to love herself. And I am here for that. Absolutely. 100% into that plot line. Can't wait. Give it to me. Um, but I don't, <laughs> I, I really hope that Ga- that Xavier, Gabriel, I almost called her Gabriel because I'm pretty sure he is Gabriel, but I really hope that Xavier lives throughout the season and is around next season. So then after Octavia loves herself again. <laughs> She can fall in love with the hot grounder boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then they can come back to this cave. Um, but bioluminescence, it definitely is like Octavia's thing. She had like the butterflies yeah. that were bioluminescent. There was one time when, didn't she like get hit with like bioluminescent sap and it like caused her like, it was like acid. Uh, that was in season four. It was like right before Lincoln died when she was on her like little mission. Um, you mean season three? Did Lincoln die in season three? You're right. It was season yeah. three. No. Was it season four? I don't know. It was in season three or four. No, I, I'm, I'm saying now I'm wondering if it happened after Lincoln died oh. and when she was like an assassin. But I think you're right. It probably was season three. Um, oh my God. I she forgot went, she was an assassin. Yeah. Was, <laughs> she had the assassin hood. <laughs> and the assassin knives. Yes. Yum. Oh, yes. Oh, boy. Uh, oh, the times. <laughs> She's been through a lot of changes. God. <laughs> A lot of Octavias, and now we're in this bioluminescent cave, and I honestly think it's kind of a step down from bioluminescent butterflies. I don't know. Because this is like bioluminescent, like what, worms, bacteria? (laughs) No, I'm into this cave. It just reminds me of Fern Gully. I mean, it was cool. It was like also a little cheesy. Like, I think bioluminescence is cheesy, like even though it's a real thing. No, I love it. It just like also looks like really bad set design. I love it. I was so into it. I I just... dispute everything you just said okay well we'll agree to disagree (laughs) um but xavier confirms to us which we already kind of knew but gabriel is the old man that is official now yes um confirmation confirmation from xavier who might be also gabriel Gabriel, (laughs) tbd on that which is well it's what i want to talk about here is you know xavier seems to know that the trees were fossilized by the temporal flare and he you know hasn't actually seen um, that one area where it just hit. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, I was thinking the temporal flare could like both speed up time and like reverse aging or mm-hmm. reverse time. Um, but he like knows for a fact what it does. So I mean, does that mean that number one that flares only age things up? And if that's true, do we still think it's possible that Xavier could be Gabriel? Because in my mind, if they were calling him the old man, he would have had to have gone into the anomaly or at least been hit by a temporal flare when he was an old man you know what I mean yeah and like the reason they don't realize it's still him is because he reversed yeah so like do we think maybe like the the temporal flares just age things up but the anomaly can do like a lot of weird things or what do you think yeah that's a good question I'm not really sure I mean I know you're like hellbent on this idea that Xavier is Gabriel and to be honest with you like you're never really wrong I mean you're you're I'm not hellbent I I think it's true I would be fine if it wasn't. I just, there are a couple of things. I mean, I could really see it going either way. Um, Let me say it this way. If Xavier turns out to be Gabriel, I would not be surprised. It seems like it's going in that direction. But there are just some, a couple of weird things that I can't really even put my finger on. But it's just like some spidey senses that makes me feel like maybe not. 
I um, would be thrilled. I mean, if he wasn't. and it's not just like my shipper heart goggles, like trying to be like, my God, please don't be Gabriel because they ship him so hard with Octavia, which I do. But I don't know. There's like a couple of things that he said in this episode that make me give pause. I mean, he was saying to Dioza, like, you have to ask him when we get there, you know, if you don't kill him first, which I think is meant to put us off the tracks. A I actually bit. thought everything he said in this episode about Gabriel made me more convinced that he was Gabriel because it almost seemed like he was like winking at well, the camera. <laughs> right. That's why I feel like maybe not. Like I think we're playing. I mean, like maybe we're playing a double game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it seems almost too obvious at He's this like, point. You're going to have to tell Gabriel about it. Nudge, nudge. You know, <laughs> you know, like where is the Iocane powder? Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of thing so I don't know I, I really could go either way on this so I'm, I'm really curious to see how this plays out I'm leaning more toward Gabriel just because uh of what that means about the or I'm leaning more toward Xavier being Gabriel because of what that means about the Dioza Octavia Xavier team up um and we'll talk about that a little bit more later but yeah I'm really loving it well there's another piece too because you know like Dioza says something like take me to the old man and then Xavier immediately um interprets this to mean that you know, Russell has offered her a deal, like without any more context than that, which suggests that he knows Russell really well, yeah. like personally, which doesn't really make sense to me because I feel like our theory before was either he was raised outside of Sanctum or he was like a low level person in Sanctum. It doesn't seem like he would have been in a, like a really high position and would have had the opportunity to get to know Russell that well. Um, but this makes it feel like he knows him very well, which I think suggests that he could be Gabriel. Yeah, um, I mean, I will say, I think he does know that Dioza was hunting them down to find Rose because, like, all of his people are now dead, you know, and he's the one who let Octavia and, and Rose go. Um, and so he knows that, like, Dioza came to kill them and now wants to kill the old man. I think it's not that hard to make the leap. Yeah, no, but, I just the way he said but yeah, it. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think he's Gabriel, so yeah. I'm definitely with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I think that, like, is another piece in the like, yeah. Gabriel puzzle. Or Xavier is Gabriel puzzle. But if he isn't Gabriel, and this is a big if, he does certainly seem to know a lot about him. Yeah, I mean, if he isn't Gabriel, he still was called Gabriel's messenger. messenger. Um, so whatever that means, you know. Yeah. Um, so who, who knows? But... I will say I don't think we're going to see any of like the Dioza Octavia um, Xavier plotline next episode in episode seven, but episode eight is called The Old Man and the Anomaly, and I am so excited so ready. for that episode. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, and then last, I just wanted to say I love that Dioza and Octavia are building this like really strange friendship or yeah. kinship. Um, like Dioza really seems to be worried about her. Oh, yeah. I think she, she can't help herself. I mean, Octavia is pathetic. Yeah, she really is. Um, and but, but I think she, like, reached her rock bottom last episode and now has decided that she wants to live and is now going to, like, start the uphill climb. Like, Marie also said in that interview that the Octavia that we get at the beginning of the season and the one we end up with at the end of the season are two different people. I'm so glad. And that really makes me very, very excited to see where this arc takes her. Absolutely. Riker is teaching Raven how to build the radiation shields, and Raven is just a bit salty with him. A bit. Just a bit. <laughs> Riker realizes that she knows about the body snatching. Raven can understand wanting a new body, but she wouldn't kill for it. 
Riker tries to defend himself, saying that he was just a kid when Russell killed him during the Red Sun, but Raven won't accept that. He may not have chosen to be resurrected the first time around, but now he is 206 years old and on body number nine. No more yeah. excuses. It's a lot of dead, dead babies. Yeah. Well, dead 21-year-olds. <laughs> and they're, they're babies. 21 is very <laughs> that young. Is, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think we can just like infer that Raven has been a lot friendlier than this current version of her since Riker immediately noticed an attitude change. Yeah. Like instantaneously. He's like, whoa, I thought we were like dating and now you're really mad at me. (laughs) Um, I mean, Riker may not feel totally okay with what he's done and what they've done, but he's also like spouting the same party line as an excuse for what they're doing. And it's like very clear that he isn't fully like on team rebel yet, you know? No, absolutely not. Um, like he feels bad, but like not bad enough to change. His again, actions. you could say that he's uncomfortable with the decisions they're making, but is still complicit. Yeah. And yes, you could. You could make that <laughs> argument. <laughs> um, and Raven calls it like you know, like if if people are raised to believe a lie, then it's not consent that they're you know letting themselves be murdered in this way. Yeah. Like it's I mean, not consent. I mean. For all of my, like, quibbles with Raven this season um, and my irritation with her, she is on fire in this scene. On fire. Um, on fire. And all of the pent-up rage that she's been keeping, like, on reserve for Clark is just, like, at the ready for Riker. I mean, everything she says and every argument he puts at her, she just swats down like a ninja. <laughs> and it was honestly so satisfying to watch it was like everything that I wanted every argument that I had played out in my head about this season was being televised on screen it was very cathartic yeah I mean it was interesting because everything Raven says is like 100% right yep um and just juxtaposing this with the way that she treated Clark earlier mm-hmm. where she would like say these things that you know technically were true but they just didn't feel right to us yeah. in the same way that this does and no, I yeah I think that's obviously in part just because Clark is our main character and we're you know conditioned to side with her but also it's because Clark really does like try to do better and keeps failing where yeah. it seems like Riker just kind of like lets it happen he's yeah, like I, I mean, feel bad about it but not bad enough to change they're pretty evenly matched you know he is her counterpart um Clark's or Ravens Ravens yeah I mean like I was kind of curious to talk about the hypocrisy of Raven in this in this episode you kind of um, talked about or you just pointed out a little bit ago about you know him um, letting things happen to him in the same way that Raven has let things happen that she might not agree with yeah Um, but it really does seem like Raven herself does not see this this hypocrisy yet oh no she's totally unaware of it but I think that's what makes it so interesting right is that she's perfectly capable of recognizing it in others but not herself yeah and I hope that being her kind of foil Riker will be sort of the the mirror that needs to be held up to her face at some point I would love that um because neither of them are a hundred percent perfect I mean, no. <laughs> he he kills and murders people um, for their bodies. And, you know, she's in denial about a lot of bad things that she's done. So, yeah, I'm super fascinated by their relationship. I think this the Riker character is a really great construction that the writers came up with as a foil for Raven and also as a spigot for us to, like, lash out at. You know, like, we need somebody to yell out, yell at that is toothless. Yeah. You know, that isn't going to – that isn't a threat. Um, so – 
this was a great scene. And the piece de resistance of it, which was perfect, was that, you know, he's going on and on about how terrible he feels about all of this. And then she's like, you've done this nine times. Yeah. Are you going to do it again? I would have believed you if this was your second body. This is your eighth body. And he just <laughs> loses the moral high ground yeah. like, instantaneously. I don't know why he thought he could like find the moral high ground. Like, I think he's used to he's used to being there, you know? Yeah. I think he's just used to occupying it. That's true. He's never had someone call him out in this way before. It was delightful. <laughs> Echo is in the woods searching for Bellamy when she finds a man being eaten by a tree in the offering grove. As promised <laughs> by this season, we got to see a man being eaten by a tree. <laughs> He asks for mercy, and she tries to help him when Jade shows up and stops her. Jade says the man chose this for his part in Rose's death, and she tells him that he's strong and that she'd join him too, except she has another charge. When the man asks for mercy again, Echo knocks Jade out and then kills him. So before we get into the Echo part here, there was like this little bit where um, Echo was following the foragers. Yeah. Uh, and someone said they're looking for red sun mushrooms, which is Allegius protocol. And then another one said it's apparently Josephine's favorite ritual. Um, and I'm just trying to figure out what you think that means. I, I'm flabbergasted and I have no idea. Like literally, mine, I don't know. Is it... Um, is red sun mushroom something that only blooms in the red sun? I mean, I would I mean, assume do that. Do mushrooms bloom? What do mushrooms do? They, like, pop up. Yeah, like, they're fungi. I mean, I know they're fungi. Did you know, side note, that mushrooms have more in common with humans than I they do did. with plants? I did know that. Sorry, guys. Uh, so just think about that. Every time you eat a mushroom, you're eating a person. That's not, <laughs> not what I said. <laughs> I mean, you might be here on this planet. There's some crazy, crazy That's plants true. and People fungi. are basically fertilizers on this planet, so... Um, but I, I, so I, I'm guessing red sun mushroom is a mushroom that either grows only in the red sun or like something happens to it in the red sun and it's a legious protocol to pick this mushroom and eat it or do something with it as a ritual every red sun. I mean, I think it's interesting, uh, like the idea of like ingesting mushrooms and like the LSD of it all the and shrooms. like the trips, you know. Maybe that's psychiatr- what they're all on. Maybe they're there, all on they're red on, sun mushrooms. You like literally saw me going there and then just <laughs> oh, sorry. got there faster than me. That's totally fine. Um, <laughs> just take those words. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> just fine. I'll just give my theory to you right away. And if this is Josephine's favorite ritual, does Josephine just like to really get high and like Well, no, around? but I do think it's interesting that they mention the idea of Josephine's ritual again. And like it's in this offering grove. And we like had this whole conversation about oblation last episode. I don't think we have enough pieces here to connect the dots, but it's something that like was important enough to include in this scene yeah um so definitely something that we should keep in mind uh <laughs> the entire time i was watching this scene and it was really gross this guy's being eaten alive the <laughs> vines are like going inside his body but the entire time all i could think about was the devil's snare and how much i'd hate sunlight devil snare devil snare it's deadly fun but we'll soak, soak in the sun. <laughs> That's it. It hates sunlight. You I just mean, need to like shine some sun. Like, oh my god! I leaves. was just like, honestly, I was like, Wingardium Leviosa. Like, get this shit away from me. <laughs> anyway, sorry um, guys. There's gonna be a lot of Harry Potter references in this episode. I'm warning you now. Oh, yeah, there's, well, there's a few, there's there's a one few more. more. I thought there was only one. Okay, well, we'll see. I only caught one other. Um, but we do find out that this is apparently the deal with the trees. You just go like sit down in front of a tree and it eats you. I guess. Maybe. <laughs> sure. Like this is definitely one one way that they could 
this well, could be with the trees. I think that when they, you know, put the bodies to rest, like Rose's body, they will just, like, lay it in front of a tree and the tree will consume it. Yeah. But this guy looked like he just, like, plopped right down and was like, have at me. Yeah. I, I mean, that's <laughs> literally what Echo did to Jade. So, yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, I, I really love that we see Echo's heart here. Yeah. You know, she does not want to watch someone suffering and she also kind of has what it takes to kill them if that's what needs to happen, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, her her mercy is so interesting, right? Because people always like to paint Echo like she's just a spy. She's just a dutiful soldier. Um, and soldiers usually, they don't ever think for themselves and they don't think about the, the moral consequences of the actions that they've been ordered to do. Um, but we can see here that that's so not true for Echo and that's something we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of seasons is that, you know, she's so emotionally intuitive and empathetic to people that she sure she is a she's a loyal soldier and she will protect the people that she loves but she's also really empathetic um and I I love that about her yeah I kind of wonder if this is some influence that Sky Crew had on her being in space for six years or if this is kind of something that's always been a part of her and maybe was tamped down by Queen Naya um but, like, for example, if Echo had walked up on someone suffering in the woods back, you know, on Earth. Yeah. Um, before she met Sky Crew, would she, like, give them mercy in this way? Like, how would she behave then? I'm trying to decide how much of it is, like, something that she's learned and how much of it is something that's just in her. Yeah, I think it's probably a bit of both. You know, I think that it, I think maybe it's been in her all along, but through the series of traumas that she's in, endured and the training um, and socialization that Naya put on her, like she suppressed it and maybe being around Sky Crew and being open and vulnerable with people again has like removed some of that suppression that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, so I like to think of it that way. Yeah. I, I, hope, I, I, hope, I so. hope we see a little bit more. I mean, I know we're seeing her backstory in, in episode, uh, episode 11, but I hope we see kind of this moment of like her being like very open and vulnerable and then switching it off you know like I, I want to see kind of that change in her because I do think it's something that she was born with but she really like to survive had to close herself off in that way yeah um <laughs> sorry I don't quite follow the guy asking uh Echo for mercy and then when Jade comes up he's like hey, you should join me. Like, it just kind of seemed weird. Like, when he's asking for mercy, it's almost like, I regret what I've done. I wish that I didn't, like, let myself be eaten by this tree. Please just, like, end my life. But then he's also like, hey, Jade, isn't that so bad? You can just come on. <laughs> I don't know. I We talked about this a little bit offline, and I have to disagree with you because I think he recognizes his sacrifice and his, I mean, what he considers his own culpability and what happened. And I think he wants to punish himself but he's just not strong enough to endure it but I think he holds Jade to a higher standard to the standard that he holds himself to and and expects her to sacrifice herself with him even if he's not able to see that sacrifice all the way through yeah I think I just have to disagree with you because I think that him asking for mercy is basically him regretting this choice and him like because I, I think you couldn't ask for mercy and want mercy and then also think that this was the right, like, that you were, like, 
doing what you were supposed to be doing. I feel like you're supposed to sit there and let the tree kill you. Yeah, but that's really hard to do. I agree. <laughs> I agree. And so I don't <laughs> believe that he would be like, hey, Jay, join me. Like, I just don't think that is something that would be on his mind right now. I think he's in so much pain that all he'd be thinking about was like, death 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 like when am I gonna die you yeah know? well I think what you're really picking up on is that it feels a little contrived and just a way to to um work in the the context that Jade has a new charge right yeah um and I totally understand you bumping on that because that it would it, it would be hard to work that into this scene if it wasn't for this and maybe this was like a little clunky I think I'm fine with it um but I understand why you bumped on it um I also I can understand Jade being responsible in some ways for Rose's death like she was supposed to be her bodyguard um but this like poor dude just opened the dome like he was told to do when Sky Crew got there and yet because of the circumstances that were beyond his knowledge and control he assumes that he's guilty or has been told that he's guilty and I, then believes that. Um, I think that this is a self-sacrifice. I don't think anybody sentenced him to this. No, I don't think anyone sentenced him to this. But, like, did he come to the conclusion on his own that, like, oh, I'm guilty? Or did someone be like, hey, you open the dome? And he's like, oh, you're right. I'm the worst. You know? I think it's self-inflicted fully. I think he, like, took it upon himself. And this is, like, his self-sacrifice. And I think it's honestly meant to be another instance of, like, how deeply brainwashed the society is. Um, and the fact that, like, nobody cares is also deeply disturbing. Yeah, he's just like like went out into the forest to die. Like there's <laughs> no there's no um system in place to take care of these people. They're expendable in like every sense of the word. Yeah. It's really sick. And then my last note here, which is like, I think we already talked about this a little bit, so I'm gonna just gonna jump on it briefly, but I just wanna point out like how much internal both physical and emotional strength it takes to bash somebody's head in. Like there was a spear right there that she could have used to end this dude's life. And Echo chose to smash his brains in, which is not only disgusting, but really, really hard to do. Um, like, it's hard to pick up a rock and bash someone's brains in, even if you are a trained assassin, like she is. Um, and I just, you know, the commitment to ending his life as quickly and painlessly as possible, despite what that would do to you as a person, is just shows a strength of character that is really incredible well a strength of something i think echo is no stranger to bashing people's heads in i'm sure she's done it before that's true um she's a little desensitized to it yeah but i mean like i think it was also the least painful way to do it i think destroying the brain yeah and, like, that's like immediately shuts down everything whereas like if she'd like stabbed him he might have still felt that for a while absolutely but it's it's like a lot easier as like a person to just be like okay i'm gonna stab you instead of like bash your brain like I mean, that's so much more violent yeah. echo's killed a lot of people so, so <laughs> i don't know just bravo echo yeah i will say that is kind of my new sexuality is like echo like picking up a big rock <laughs> and like bludgeoning this guy to death i'm real into it okay, we're gonna have to get you into some therapy <laughs> We need everyone in the show to get into some therapy. Dio's is busy right now, but <laughs> it's true. Murphy's pacing, asking Bellamy if Clark would really want them to go to war for this since Clark wanted to do better this time. Bellamy realizes that Murphy isn't restrained like he is, and Murphy relents and tells Bellamy that he's here to convince him to take the deal. Bellamy is furious, saying that Monty would be ashamed of him, but Murphy isn't so sure. Bellamy ultimately refuses to take the deal, and Monty or er, and Murphy leaves, saying he'll do his best to make sure Josephine only kills Bellamy and no one else. 
Yeah, so this was another tough scene. Um, and I guess my biggest question, or one of my questions, is how much of what Murphy is saying feels truly how he feels and how much of this is just him in survival mode again? I think it is both. I think that Murphy really does think that, you know, there's no point in getting revenge on all of these people at this point. Like, what's done is done, and they should take the best deal and move forward. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if I disagree with I him. don't disagree. I, I see where he's coming from, and I see the wisdom in what he's doing. Um, but I do think how much of it is like him feeling guilty as well is up for grabs. I, I, I think that he feels guilty that he's betraying Bellamy. Yeah. More so than anyone. It's like what he knows that Bellamy would not feel good about this. And so like, I think a lot of his guilt comes from that and not from necessarily doing the wrong thing. I completely agree with you a hundred percent. I think, I think Bellamy is his moral compass and who he gets his moral guidance from. Yeah. Everything he knows about morality, he learned from Bellamy. Um, and betraying Bellamy's trust and his in his own beliefs um, is a much bigger crime than Murphy would care about saving his own skin, you know? Yeah, and that's why I kind of wonder how much it hurts Murphy when Bellamy's like, oh, why am I not surprised that you turned on us, you yeah. know? Um, because I think Murphy has tried a lot of different ways to prove himself worthy of, you know, having a second chance and having these family members around him. Um, You know, we saw last season that, you know, he chose to go back and save Raven and he really did play the hero in in many ways um, last season. And now it's kind of like all of that is for Noel. Like he literally just saved Bellamy like two days ago. And he mentions it. He brings it up. Like I just saved you and Clark. Was that for nothing? Yeah. And like, it's like Bellamy just like, throws all of that aside and is like, huh, you're just the cockroach I knew from season one, you know? And it's interesting because now that Clark is gone, you know, quote unquote gone, and Bellamy has reverted back to his, you know, thinks with his heart. Yeah. You need the counterpart to that. You need somebody who's thinking with their head. You need somebody who's thinking logically. And Clark would be the first person to think about how to ensure their survival and how to save the rest of their people, which is essentially what Murphy is doing. Bellamy just isn't, I mean, the way that Murphy goes about doing this is weaselly, um, which makes it much harder to swallow. Well, I don't know. I'll just jump ahead because you brought up the whole Clark thing. I don't know what Clark would do in this situation. I do think that ultimately we would end up in the same place as where Bellamy ended up this episode. But um, if someone had killed Bellamy or, you know, Maddie, uh, either one, what would Clark do? Clark probably would want revenge. She'd be very upset for a while. I don't know if she would carry out that revenge, yeah. but you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just curious, like how similar Bellamy's reaction is to what Clark's would have been in the same situation. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good question. I don't know. I mean, I would like to say she would be wise, like you were saying earlier and, and think of the rest of their people. Um, but if it's Bellamy or Maddie's life on the line, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, I did think it was interesting that Bellamy like immediately connects what Murphy's doing to Murphy thinking that he went to hell. Yeah. Like that was the second he was like, why am I not surprised? And then he says, what did you see in hell, Murphy? Or, you know. Yeah. Um, so he kind of 
realizes that Murphy has this fear that he's running on fear in a way that he hasn't in a while. Yep. Um, and so I, I liked that he made that connection. So yeah, it was a connection we made last episode and it's nice when we are, you know, our thinking is lining with our main characters as well. Yeah. Um, it's really, really interesting. And I also, I think it's maybe the first time that we see Murphy acting not only for himself, but for the sake of others in like a, in a leadership role. I mean, like he's really taken on the mantle of leadership because he's just found himself in this weird position. Yeah. Um, and there's a practicality to what he's saying that is not wrong, like we were saying. Um, and it's just the fact that Bellamy is riddled with grief that he's unable to reckon with with the truth of this. I mean, they, they don't have a lot of options here. And war is not the answer. Um, I mean, I, I kind of want to bring up what Murphy's doing. And you're saying that he's taking on a leadership role, which isn't incorrect. But... It make this episode makes it seem like his driving motivation is getting the mind drives. So like, let's just say we took the mind drives out of this equation. Yeah. Do we still think that Murphy would be doing the same things as he's doing now? Yeah, I don't know. Do you? I think he would I because think I think he's again growing. Well, no, I was gonna say I think he's ultimately a cockroach. Yeah. He like will choose the path that he needs to choose to survive. Yeah. And I think that siding with Josephine here is the path that he needs or believes he needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, there's one way where it's selfless or, you know, at least partially selfless where it's like, I want to survive and I want my family to survive. But then there's also this added selfishness here, which is that Josephine is doing this in exchange for giving him um, the mind drives. Yeah. Um, and so like how much of the mind drive of the goal to get the mind drive is like driving what he's doing. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's a really interesting question and I don't have a clear answer for it, but I don't think we're meant to because I think that in the end, like Murphy's a mystery, you know, like he's always going to be a question mark. And I think where he lands on either side of that selflessness versus selfishness just, just depends <laughs> episode to episode. Um, I mean, I think ultimately we'll have a better idea of this at the end of the series, um, hopefully. And we have seen him make significant strides you know, from where we started in season one. I mean, like our, our dear love for him um, is a testament enough to how much growth that they've let this character do. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, there is a, there's a slitherinness to him that just will, you know, that's just part of who he is that we're never going to stamp out completely. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And then lastly, what do you think Monty would do here? Oof. Like, who do you side with in this argument, Bellamy or Murphy, on what Monty would do? I I think Monty would side with Murphy. I, I think that Monty is a pacifist. I think that he deals with his grief in a pacifist way, and I don't think that he would ever want to bring more war and death upon them. I think Monty would ultimately be on the side of making peace but I do think he would be disgusted with Murphy's drive of the mind drives for the mind drives, <laughs> for the mind drives. like him him doing that for the mind drives would not sit well with oh Monty. absolutely Monty wouldn't like it so I think I think it's like both Bellamy and Murphy are right you know I think Monty would want to make peace and to like figure out a way to like move past this without violence but he still would not 
be on on Murphy's yeah. side specifically. There's a way to achieve the goals that you you could. There's a way that you can all have the same goal in mind, but just different ideas of how to get there. Monty was selfless. Like out of pure. everyone, Monty was pure selfless. Um, and I miss him. And I, you know, wouldn't mind if he appeared in Clark's wouldn't mind, mind it at all. Next episode, we'll see. <laughs> wouldn't mind it at all. Dioza and Xavier are walking back to the place where the temporal flare hit, and Xavier tells her about Gabriel. Xavier says that he can offer Dioza a better redemption than Russell can. If Dioza gives her baby to Sanctum, she'll be considered a null with very few rights. Dioza's okay with this as long as her daughter would still be alive. When they get to the fossilized trees, Xavier takes some sap and pours it on Dioza's arm, where she watches a cut heal before her very eyes. So... We finally find out about Knowles here. Yeah. We theorized kind of what the the deal was with like the lower echelon of society, which really I think is everyone aside from the primes and yeah. maybe the nightbloods. And um, maybe the guards. May- I think ha- no, because he, no, well, he says I guess, yeah, in no. this. Uh, so it sounds like everyone else is considered a null, which means they're not allowed to have children. Yeah. Which is very strange to me because all of these people are descended from nightbloods. Um, which means that they must have the gene in there somewhere, even if they're not expressing it. Well, I think what they mean by children is they're not allowed to freely have children. I still think they're probably harvesting DNA from them and like using them to incubate either in, ter- in the woman's body or outside, but still using their eggs. Um, I mean, I don't know, because if they are, they're not doing it well. They're not making nightbloods well. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure about that either, but I think it all like has something to do with the eugenics program that... that- josephine was using but either way i think it's just it's like a they're they're not allowed to freely have children yeah and i just i don't really understand that both aside from the fact that they all carry night blood genes you know no more than anyone else uh but also the fact that like they need people to work in the fields and you know be the guards and scrub the toilets like you know you need those people too (laughs) so so it's clearly not a population issue right they're they're still getting people from somewhere yeah there's a lot of people they're growing people we just don't know how these people are coming into existence and i think if they are still using their population to harvest eggs and sperm to you know yeah yeah, create life um then this is about you know, just stripping away their civil rights and their human freedoms, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can't disagree. Um, I just would like a little bit more of an explanation as to like the, the logistics of how this society works. And oh, for sure. I don't know if we're going to get that. No, but I think it's just going to be unclear. Yeah. Um, but if Gabriel, I'm sorry, <laughs> this is like Freudian slip every time. If Xavier isn't actually Gabriel... Uh, we are assuming he was a knoll, right? For sure. Like he carries some some serious salt about. Yeah, the there's idea some baggage knolls. there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really, 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 as I mentioned earlier, love this threesome they're setting up, especially if Xavier is Gabriel, because it shows that like these three people who've both done really bad things in their lives, you know, from their own point of view they can still turn their lives around. Like Dioza, well, we have no idea what the hell she did, but she's likened to Hitler in the history books. And Osama bin Laden. Um, 
but you know she's still here trying to like make a better world for her daughter Octavia at least just you know reached rock bottom and doesn't want to die which is a big deal for her yeah it's a big step Um, if Xavier is Gabriel then as he called it he had a moral awakening and came out into the forest to find the anomaly and became a young man and is now like leading the resistance I don't know yeah I mean I think it works really well thematically yeah the three of them together as three points of this triangle of redemption um it's really beautiful Mm -hmm. and you know even if he's not Gabriel even if it ultimately turns out that he isn't I like the idea of him being Gabriel's message to sort of satisfy that theme yeah um I also love how much insight Xavier has into the way Dioza feels about Octavia I mean Apparently, she's, like, not as done with Lost Causes as she says she is. And I like that he takes note of that, especially where it, you know, pertains to Octavia. Because I think it is very true and a very keen observation on his part that Octavia is important to her. She's becoming a blend of both, you know, someone that Dioza identifies as somebody she used to be like. And also as, like, a surrogate daughter as she is, you know, growing a, a, a human baby in her own body. I think she's become she's coming to to feel responsible to Octavia in a way that that's not so unfamiliar with like a maternal instinct would be. And I really I'm really into this. I don't know if I'd go as so far as to say surrogate daughter, but I think she definitely identifies with feelings Octavia has felt, which I think is what's leading her to really care about her or want to care about her, I guess. Yeah, I don't think it's, like, as clear-cut as the way that, like, Clark thinks of Maddie as her daughter, but I think that there is a kinship the way what you said earlier that exists here in a way that, like, Octavia is so helpless and so pathetic and broken, um, and Dioza has all of these insights and abilities to help her um, but, and she reaches out to her in not, not just practical ways, but like in emotional ways too. So I don't know. I just, I find it all really fascinating. And I love that, that Xavier is like observant enough to like yeah. notice all of this. He really pinpoints it. Yeah. I did like have my ears perk up when Dioza's like my days for fighting for lost causes is over. And it's like, what was the lost cause she was fighting for? What was Dioza fighting for? Exactly. Like if you're not going to like make this into something later, couldn't you just tell Tell us us. like the only thing I can think of is Jason Rothenberg I know we know he's writing a prequel and he doesn't want to like let go of too much of like what the world was like at that time because it's going to be explored in the prequel which I guess is okay if Dios is in the prequel if she's in the prequel sign me up up. (laughs) (laughs) um but I just I yeah I want to know more about her I, I find her a fascinating character as we've said a trillion times yes. and Merit saying again um <laughs> one other thing I wanted to call out is um Xavier I was just about to call him Gabriel um <laughs> Xavier calls out Dioza when she she calls it buying time you know he she thinks he's stalling um because he doesn't actually have a cure but he notes that that's a really interesting and kind of punny choice of words right because in a, in a way they are buying time you know they're literally reversing they're stealing time. the clock um <laughs> But it's also like putting in that that in the context of this entire season is exactly what they're doing. They're they're buying time from other people's lives. They're stealing it, um, which I just think is so great when the writers are just like working on so many levels. I love it. And sure, <laughs> I, I I agree. <laughs> That's it. It took me a second to like figure out what you were even saying. <laughs> okay. Did every? I hope everyone else was on board. <laughs> Sorry, I rambled. Um, and then the other old thing, the other thing I was gonna say about this is, 
whether or not the old man is Gabriel or Xavier, I can't wait to meet him. And spoiler alert, I don't think Dios is going to kill him. No. It's just a weird hunch. I do not think so either. Um, I wanted to say that... You okay over there? Just, I, no, I mean, yes. <laughs> I, I keep getting like caught up in like my thoughts about what the anomaly could be and stuff, but I don't want to talk about that yet. We have a little discussion about that plan later. Um, but I did want to say here in this scene, it was odd that the temper... This is like very like weird sci-fi logic to me, which is the temporal flare fossilized all of these trees, mm-hmm. but it didn't fossilize the sap inside. It just changed it to be time traveling sap you know yeah no instead of you mean turning it into like an amber or something yeah well i mean like fossilizing the sap in some way it should have done that if yeah it did like it the trees like the way that like wood petrifies and yeah. sap turns to amber yeah. over time you would think that's what would have happened but instead it's still a liquid and it just has it these just special magical healing powers time travel yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's very hand wavy. Yeah. I will give it to you. This is like some weird magic pseudoscience happening. But, but I'll take it because it's cool. It's very cool. <laughs> Maddie screams and Gaia runs into the room. Maddie tells her that she's seeing Shade Hedda in mirrors and Gaia says they need to do the separation ritual now. She coaches Maddie into a dream space where she's supposed to find the other commanders to back her up while she confronts Shade Hedda. However, when Maddie gets into the dream space, Shade Hedda is the only one there and he tells her she needs to kill her teacher just like he did his own. Maddie balks at this and pulls herself out of the dream space, only to find that Gaia has chained her to the bed for, as Gaia says, her own protection. Hmm. So first off, what the hell is the separation ritual? Like, what are they separating? I have no idea. And I think if we're going to talk about the flaws of this episode, this is a glaring one. I don't feel like they have set up the separation ritual in a way that is understandable. I I need way more context for this, especially if it's going to be this huge emotional dilemma moral dilemma for Maddie and the way that it affects Gaia moving forward like I need so much more information about this and I just don't feel like we've been given it and I don't know why I don't know if I need so much more information I'd be fine with just a line saying like oh we need to do the separation ritual to like do this this and this well they said it they said something like that a couple of episodes ago where she was saying like you know you have all of these commanders in your head if one of them gets out of you know gets too much control we then we need to do a separation ritual but i'm still unclear what the actual that's what i'm saying like what the hell is the ritual i get you're doing something because of shade hedda yeah but what are you separating is it just like you know putting shade hedda in like a little box in the corner of the flames like he can't get to you or like like exactly what are you doing is what are you erasing shade hedda I, i need more information yeah and i i feel like this was an omission yeah personally um also another harry potter call out i really feel there was some strong harry potter influences in this scene guy is like telling maddie that she needs to hold on to a good memory you know to whereas you know it's like a shield of protection when she's going in to fight she had a who's wearing like a dementor cloak <laughs> it was all very very patronusy and it was very obvious to me the entire time anyway <laughs> I don't think, to be fair, I don't think that's only a Harry Potter idea. It was like idea. word for word from the script. Think of a happy memory. Let it, like, protect you. I mean, it was it was literally from the third movie. Think of a wonderful thought. No. Any happy little thoughts. 
I, I just think there's a lot of like different media that has that idea that like if you think of happiness like a happy time it'll like keep you safe from like darkness around you yeah sure um, I mean, like, even I'm Octavia being... even Octavia being like you know I'm not afraid I'm not afraid like that mantra is something that like like helps her keep her fear in check yeah I'm being facetious obviously <laughs> but I just thought that was funny um why didn't the other commanders show up like they were supposed to in this dream space um two theories one Gaia really doesn't know what the hell she's talking about um or two she'd had to kill them well, <laughs> I don't think she'd had to killed them or like chained them up <laughs> I don't know I mean maybe this means that his influence over Maddie is greater than they even thought no I mean that's actually what I think is happening well I I don't know I mean another question is or another like idea is that Shade Hedda is um keeping them away in some way yeah he's like holding them back from <laughs> yeah her. I don't know how but I do feel like or at least at this point I feel like the show is supporting the theory that Shade Hedda has just grown has more influence over Maddie so she doesn't have that access to the other commanders like she did before but I don't understand why I mean like I get at the end of this episode once Clark has died but earlier in this episode and pretty much every other episode this season Maddie's like doing pretty well she like went to school she's like living in this really nice room yeah she's very formidable and not easily influenced no that's not even what I'm saying I just mean like Maddie has had a pretty easy time of it lately Mm -hmm. and I would have thought that if a a dark influence was able to kind of gain some power over your, you, it would be in your weaker moments. Sure. Whereas, like, like again, at the end of this episode, after Maddie thinks that Clark is dead, but I'm surprised that, 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 that Shade Head has gained this influence over her when she's, you know, been pretty happy. Yeah, and I think this is all what I've been, what I was saying before, in that I just need more information. I feel yeah. like we don't have enough intel to like surmise what's what's going on here and I feel like it's an omission on the part of the writers that they just didn't have time to really dedicate to getting into all of this but even a couple of lines would have been really really insightful um the only thing I can think of is that because Maddie's been so happy her shields have been lower and like that's why darkness was able to like grab her I mean that's kind of weak I, I agree. think yeah I feel like that's a weird way that darkness would manifest itself because yeah. like if the idea of like her bringing in a happy memory is supposed to be like her source of strength no, then that's that a would good like point. That's a good point. not work with that theory yeah. but yeah I honestly just think we don't have enough information and I find it annoying that we don't I'm annoyed maybe that was part of what they cut out that's yeah that's what I think maybe they thought we didn't need it but like we really do yeah I just <laughs> think that we're like missing a couple steps in this line to connect all the dots yeah uh, and we need a little bit more. Um, really quick, I just wanted to call out, because we don't talk about sets enough, um, the set of this dreamscape, this dream space is really amazing. It's fascinating. You know, Maddie wakes up and she's on a throne, which I think is really cool. It's a throne of animal skins. There's candles everywhere. I mean, it's this like circular room, which makes me think of Polis. Um, and we can immediately infer that this is set in some somewhere in grounder culture on Earth. You know, there there the visuals of it are all very similar. The aesthetic is the same, and I love this idea of it being like no matter where you are physically, that the flame exists in this grounder culture where it originated on Earth. I think that is so cool, and I love that that's where they put this. Yeah, well, I think the flame is 
only made up of other commanders and so it's like whatever the commanders have experienced is is creating the flames experience as a whole yeah absolutely i think you're right and that's why i love it so much <laughs> it's a really great visual representation of that i mean they didn't have to go that hard but they did <laughs> um also something i wanted to call out what is wrong with shade Hida's face like, is this some kind of self-mutilation or is it an, a reflection of, like, his damaged soul, like, Voldemort style? I mean, I think this person really did have this mutilation. Um, so, again, bringing back Dioza into it, I still think Dioza knew this person in some uh -huh. way. Um, what if he was, like, one of her lost causes? Like, you know, maybe they're going to tie it in that way. Oh, maybe. Like, I'm done fighting for lost causes. Like, maybe this was someone that she'd taken under her wing and kind of lost control of before the apocalypse. Yeah. I'm probably reaching here because I don't know if we're going to get stuff from before the apocalypse. Yeah, I don't know either. But I like that theory. I could be on board with that. But whatever it is, um, I do think it happened to him when he was alive. Yeah, and I okay. Don't know if so you, you think it's like a physical reflection of what he looked like as a human? I do. Okay. Because I think that I couldn't figure out if it was like that or if he like, you know, like Voldemort shows up is like that scaly baby is <laughs> like just a reflection of his damaged soul I couldn't tell if it was like which of I these it, things it could be but I just think we've seen the other commanders look like themselves in life and so I would assume that he would too yeah I would assume that but then also like there's some weirdness about him that's not like the other commanders so I mean like yes <laughs> so I'm not sure I don't know um but we gotta talk about it and we yeah, gotta we talk do. about Shade Hedda not being cat again like it seems very clear in the scene that he is someone who is different than cat again and someone who is maybe like weaker um and was led astray and then ultimately like overpowered his his mentor tutor uh, tutor uh which means that it's still possible that his mentor was cat again yes um i think that that's probably true I mean, at this point, like, how many times can I think that Cadigan's about to happen and then he doesn't happen? I don't know. I'm, what's the highest number? <laughs> the, but the I did. It does not exist. I did. I did. We watched this separate because I was on tour and I did text that to you. That was a night. That was a theory that I came up with. No, I mean, it was a theory we both came yeah, up no, with. Yeah, no, I'm not saying yeah. that you didn't also think of it. I'm just saying that it, it seemed as likely to me and I'm not like a Cadigan theorist. Yeah, I mean... I was upset at first about the idea that this wasn't Cadigan because I was really excited to get that perspective. But the more I think about it, the more it makes even more sense to me that Cadigan, as a person, wouldn't choose to take the flame. He wouldn't take that risk, not knowing what it would do to him. Absolutely. But he would make someone else take that risk and then try to control that person. I 100% agree with you. Um, and like the first time I'd read this scene in context, it sounded like, because of the comparisons that um, Shadehead was making to Gaia, I, like, in my head had the thought of, like, oh, this was, like, a benevolent person who was trying to, like, turn him toward good and he wanted to be bad. But then when I watched it again after you had texted me about the Cadigan thing, I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, can, I, can, I can see that this sounds like something who was, like, really controlling. And yeah, I feel like it was – it could have been a situation where he was, like, an innocent or at least someone who was really naive and then got put into a situation and when was, like, twisted into something really dark and heinous. Yeah. Um, and is now this product, which I think is way more interesting. It's definitely interesting, and it makes sense to me thinking about why – Cadigan would have like created this religion around Becca because that was kind of the missing link that I could never right. quite understand if Cadigan had been the second commander like why they would have like 
upheld Becca Promheta as like the great you yeah. know leader instead of, our, of making yeah, himself instead a of god himself yeah um but if it were Shade Hedda who was one I mean I'm, I'm not quite sure yet if he would have made Becca into the leader either but it does seem like it would be a little bit more clear maybe for the third person who caught the flame maybe. that they were able to like see the whole lineage of the commanders <laughs> yeah I'm not sure I'm not sure we'll have to see um, quick question about Gaia again, because I think all of her behavior in this episode is very strange, and I think I'm just trying to, to figure out what her <laughs> motives are. Yeah. Um, but do we think that Gaia chooses not to wait for Clark to do the ritual because she suspects something, or it's just, like, the urgency of the situation? Or I both? Think, I think it's the urgency first and foremost. I also think that, in her mind, Clark has not been helpful at all recently, or, like, she hasn't given the flame the reverence it deserves. And she's like, Clark, like, shouldn't be here. Like, she's just getting in the way. Yeah. Um, but I still don't think that Maddie or that uh, Gaia, like, understands what's wrong with Clark. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think that she has any okay. clue what's going on with Clark. But it just felt like a little bit not purely related to the urgency of the situation. Like, it felt like she was trying to like keep Clark out a little bit, which which makes sense with what you're saying. I think not necessarily keep Clark out for me, but it was just more like she's suspicious and annoyed with the way Clark's been acting recently. And she's like, you know, Clark's not here. Like, yeah, let's just forget about Clark right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I think Gaia's handling a lot, balancing a lot. Um, But I think she ultimately would have saved herself a lot of trouble if she had just told Maddie before she put her under that she was going to chain her up. Yeah. Like, why didn't she just say, I mean, I understand that this is a drama, like a dramatic television show and that we need to like dramatize things. Yeah. But this is the kind of like sloppiness that really irritates me. And the show is usually smarter than this and it really bothers me. <laughs> Yeah, it did seem unnecessary. And I mean, it was very clearly to show the connection between Jade Head being like, oh, yeah, my my teacher kept me in chains. And then Maddie immediately waking up being in chains. Yeah, so. it, it was it was um, it was it was sloppy. Yeah. Josephine sits down by Abby to tell her about the cane problem, which Abby takes offense to. Josephine says the primes have a way to save Kane, but they'll have to turn him into a nightblood first. Then she shows Abby the mind drives. Abby is horrified by the idea of taking an innocent life for this, but Josephine manipulates her, saying that Cain deserves to be here more than anyone. Ultimately, Abby agrees to show Sanctum how to make Nightblood. So, this is kind of the one thing that I had mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I hated. I, just, I still hate this. I, I hate everything about it. It leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. I also don't believe it. Like, last episode... I, I don't believe that Abby would have noticed that Clark was writing with her, you know, wrong, wrong hand, hand. Um, because that was something so minor and Abby's really like into the throes of this obsession. But I really don't believe that Abby is so far gone that she wouldn't recognize her own daughter. And Clark, this person who's in front of her is nothing like Clark. They even go so far as to point it out yeah, several <laughs> times in this scene. Um, It's absurd. I mean... It's not like Abby would be like, oh, my God, you're not my daughter. But the fact that Abby isn't, like, clued into, like, there is something wrong Really wrong. I yeah. mean, like, we were saying this earlier. I, I would be so offended if I came back from this and found out my own mother didn't recognize me. Like, how do you, how do you forgive that? I would be devastated. Yeah, I mean, like, Abby, it's not like she knows about the body snatching, but 
you know, there could have been something else wrong with Clark. She could have been on drugs. You know, they could have given her drugs or yeah, or brainwashed her. I, I mean, don't but know. she she does know about the body snatching because. Clark or Josephine explains it in this scene. She's literally talking oh, about right. Right. turning into Nightbloods, replacing the consciousness into a new body, like literally handing Abby all of the pieces that she needs to put this puzzle together and she doesn't figure it out. And we're supposed to buy that it's because she's so obsessed with Kane and saving him that she doesn't notice all of this weirdness with her daughter and I'm sorry, but it's not, it's so beyond the point of believability. I find it ridiculous. Yeah. I, I just don't I don't believe it <laughs> I yeah and I, I and I also don't believe that Abby would ever ever condone murdering another person in order to save Kane even if they go willingly I don't think I think that just goes against her entire character and I think the show the show's characterization of Abby doesn't support this well and I know Josephine says the whole thing about Kane being the only good person as a way to manipulate Abby like that's what she's kind of using it for but like sure can we stop the rhetoric that Kane is the only good person among this group? Like the only one who deserves to live because he's just like genuinely good because bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I don't actually think the show supports that, but it's sure. It's just something that, that um, Josephine is parroting because Abby believes that. I know. Well, Abby, I know she heard Abby say it last yeah. episode, but um, Jackson heard the same thing last episode and he didn't like. Didn't refute it refute yeah yeah so I mean I don't I don't think the show necessarily believes it but I'm getting irritated (laughs) at the idea of it yeah I Um, agree it's it's really annoying and more so than that like as much as I don't like Kane I will say that like Kane wouldn't want this like he'd be horrified to wake up in another body and realize that like they killed someone for him absolutely I mean and that's that's the piece of this right is like not only would Abby never condone murdering another person to save Kane but she would know that Kane would never want this yeah on top of the fact that like Clark is acting like a crazy person I mean Clark is acting like a psycho like this is the weirdest mom they would praise you for it right like we can save solve the Kane problem I'm sorry. This scene is so far beyond believable. I it's really, really absurd. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, um, so but to fully convince Abby, Josephine uses the kicker and the kicker isn't what Murphy told her it would be about um, Clark's father. Like she does say that. Yeah. And she does mention Abby's addiction. But the kicker is that Clark, you know, quote unquote, Clark needs Abby. Mm -hmm. Um, And that seems to be what really convinces Abby in that moment. Yeah, that clinches the deal. And I will say for as bad as Josephine is at acting like Clark, that particular moment right there at the end was like A plus. Yeah, it took her a while to get into the zone, but then she (laughs) finally found her groove and that last piece really sold it, um, which I don't take issue with that last bit. I think that that made that worked and that made sense. It was everything leading up to that point that I take issue with. Simone isn't convinced about Josephine's idea to erase the entire Lee family. Josephine says they don't have a choice, that they need to give these chips to Sky Crew to convince them to do this. Plus, once they know how to make Nightblood, they'll be able to snatch any body they want. <laughs> At that, Simone finally relents and they erase the Lee's mind drives. Okay, so I know we already established this, but it is still mind-boggling to me how little Josephine cares about erasing her friends. And I, I realize that she's trying to cover something up with Kaylee, but still, you would think there would be just like a teeny tiny hesitation over this but no this is just a means to an end and she she isn't bothered by it one bit I mean her psychopathy is like on full display here and it doesn't seem to bother her mother 
either. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that Josephine has lost all empathy if she ever had any to begin with. Yeah. It's gone now, um, as Russell points out later on. And yeah. at this point, like, I don't think she cares about anyone but herself. Yeah. Like, my God, she throws her dad under the I bus. I know. You know? It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I did like here that Josephine, we've seen her before manipulate her father using emotion. And in this scene, she really manipulates her mother using facts. Yeah. And that, I think, really goes to show how much Josephine understands what makes people tick. Yep. And is able to, like, you know, get in the groove no matter who she's talking to. And we've seen that this episode with Murphy. We saw it with Abby. Um, and it's something that she's clearly good at, even she's, though she's really bad at acting like Clark. Yeah. And, I mean, it's also, like, it's just a nice reversal, or gender reversal, to have the mother be you know, appeased by facts and have the father be appeased by emotion. Like, yeah. I like that gender reversal too. It's so funny to me here in the scene, Josephine's like, mom, if we don't do this, we'll die. You know, like after living a full lifetime, we'll die. Yeah. Like, you know, after living nine lifetimes, we'll die. <laughs> no, but I mean, she's like saying we'll die is like, it's like a dire thing, but it's like, oh my God, you still got like 60, 60 70, years. 80 years ahead of you. I know. And I also think it's funny that Simone only really gets on board after, you know, realizing that they can pick anybody they want. You know, it's not like they're already beautiful. Yeah, I was going to say, I think they have the genetic pick of the litter anyway. Have you seen all of them? And I'm just like, I, it's just mind boggling. Anyway, um, this does mean, this would mean no more Knowles and no more ablation. Um, but I'm curious, like, do we fully understand what this means at this moment in time and how this like works in their system or we're no. still unclear on this. I mean, I think we're unclear. We were talking about it earlier. Yeah. Like there's, I don't know if we're going to get it, but I don't understand how their society functions on a like completely, you know, practical level. Okay. Got it. Moving on. But I do think we'll get more on the eugenics program and ablation. Ooh, for sure. I, I mean, I would think so. I think that might be some, uh, that might have something to do with the secret that, you know, Clark or not Clark that Josephine killed Kaylee for well and I also think that once they do this and they have they can make nightbloods out of anybody I think that you know they're also going to want to play with genetics like she's saying here so wait what do you mean like once they get the ability to create nightblood yeah you know they can play with genetics any way they want so well I don't think that the ability to create nightblood would allow them to like have a greater understanding of how genetics work, but they would definitely be able to like choose anyone. To oh, take I, I guess. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I was conflating these two things and you're right. Okay. Got it. A clock rings in the workshop and Raven tries to turn it off, but Riker tells her not to touch it, that it's something his second host built. He also has a bracelet he wears from a sixth host. Raven doesn't think that keeping gifts from the people you killed does something beautiful. It's something a serial killer would <laughs> <laughs> At this, Amori interrupts them, telling Raven that Abby needs her to fly up to the mothership. Before Raven leaves, she asks if Riker is going to, if this is going to be his last body, and his silence gives Raven her answer. So first and foremost, I just fucking love this scene. It was so cathartic and so satisfying. And also these two actors have really, really great chemistry. Yeah, and they, they get real close in this scene. And even though <laughs> it's like kiss, kiss, kiss. I, I just like deeply like they're not ready yet, obviously, no, obviously. But like I ship them so hard if it's not so seriously obvious. Um, but I love this scene. I mean, it's honestly off putting to me, though, how much Riker tries to defend what he's done. I know that it's um, kind of human nature that if you're being attacked, you're going to defend yourself, even if you don't really believe what you've done is defensible. 
Uh, and I don't know if Riker actually does believe it, but he keeps trying to like put forward evidence. Is like, oh look, I care. See, I'm wearing this dead guy's bracelet on my arm. Yeah, I also think it's the first time that he's ever had to like put these arguments to the test. Yeah. Um, I think that he's like conned himself into believing that he cares and that he's doing the deceased families a service by you know meeting with them and mourning the bodies and you know sharing memories of the their past lives when it's really it's torture um it's a form of torture and and my and he must he's just like deluded himself into believing that he's doing them a service um and he's never had to question it until this second when raven forces him to um well i think it's more of like he's not deluding himself into real and like into pretending that he's done a service to them but i think it's more of like he's trying to appease his own conscience by like memorializing them yeah but he thinks that that's that's working like he he thinks that like by engaging with like the The families yeah the families and everything then he's making a good person yeah Yeah. which is not true because he stole them in the first place (laughs) um so there's where the delusion lies and i do think it's interesting that his denial functions in such an interesting comparison to Raven's. I mean, they are so similar and we talked about this earlier. And even though Raven is in her own sort of denial herself, you know, it's still, she's still able to like sear straight through to the heart of what's going on here. And all of the points that she makes in this scene are excellent and so satisfying. And this was like, obviously part one of two or part two of, the first half of this scene which is before and i think they both work so well in this episode they're just like supremely satisfying to watch i will say i'm a bit confused by the timeline here because Riker is in his eighth host now Mm -hmm. um but he still gets together with the mother of his sixth host to reminisce about her son and so that means that he went through the sixth host body and the seventh host's body to get into this eighth host's body yeah um so he couldn't have lived full lifetimes in either one right well either he's really cavalier about his bodies and he keeps either accidentally dying or getting murdered or i don't think he's getting murdered or it sound like they murder people he here. like accidentally used the wrong tense and the mother's deceased and he didn't actually mean it's like continuing to happen i mean like he didn't accidentally do anything the writers did. that's what i'm so saying i don't feel like the writers would make a uh, like time mistake that badly i i mean it could have been a weird thing where like he was on set that day and said the wrong tense i don't know maybe the writers not don't supervise the shooting well yes i know that but so, I, like I, 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 i'm just saying like that's that's a possibility well, it went through a lot of people is what i'm saying like you know it's kind of like how did that cup end up in the game of thrones episode yes <laughs> i'm also like i i don't if this was a mistake like how did that end up there that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. um unless that's pointing to something bigger about them dying early or um, being murdered, which I don't know if I agree with or, like, believe. Yeah. But, you know, Josephine got murdered, but everyone kind of hated her, I think. So <laughs> I wonder why. Um, and then, of course, Maury comes in when Raven and Riker are, like, right in each other's faces. And she's like, um, am I interrupting something here? Yeah, she's like, <laughs> let me relieve you of your duty, Raven. Like, get out. <laughs> You are not supposed to be flirting with this Well, man. I don't think Raven was flirting. No, she's not flirting. Or not. But there was still a lot of sexual There's a lot tension. of heat. <laughs> Mori just comes in with like a giant wet blanket. And like, let me just step in here. 
Jade wakes up tied to a tree in the offering grove. Echo interrogates her about where Bellamy is, but then Echo puts it together herself that the Prime's new Clark was a nightblood and that Clark is no longer Clark. Jade tells Echo that Bellamy has until Second Moon to get on board with the Primes, and Echo tells her that she'll come back for Jade, but only if she gets to Echo to Bellamy in time. So my girl Echo is having such a good episode. She really is. What I a great episode. It. She is can I just say for the no- millionth time, Echo is so fucking smart. There are all of these people in this episode who are literally looking at Josephine in the face and can't figure it out. But Echo puts it together just through context clues. Well, I will say, I think there's a lot of really smart people on this show. But Echo is, out of everyone, I think the most even-keeled and, like, logical. Like, that's she's always so cool, calm, and collected. Yeah. Um, And I think that helps her. But what I also think helps her is that she's not fighting with Clark right now. And so everyone else is mad at Clark. And that is kind of why they were able to, or I am able to justify them not seeing that this isn't Clark. Yeah. Because like you said earlier, they want to see the bad qualities in her. But Echo, because she's not mad at her, I think is even able to see Clark uh, more clearly than anyone else, even though she knows Clark the least. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's just brilliant. And I loved watching her put all the pieces together. Yeah. It was, it was was great. Um, I do feel bad for Jade in some ways because, again, Jade really was brainwashed into this. Yeah. But I also, like, the show hasn't made me care enough about Jade yet to feel bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like, she's a victim in, like, the, like, largest sense of that word. Yeah. Um, But I don't sympathize with her because she's not a sympathetic character. Well, that's the thing is, like, Jade has been in a lot of episodes now. Yeah. but we still don't know anything about her. And I wish that the show would like give her a little bit more characterization outside of like following Josephine around. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, maybe she will. Maybe she will. Yeah. Maybe she, we'll get there. I did kind of go through all of the, the IMDb pages for the season and it seemed like she's going to be in most of the episodes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm definitely hoping after this that we might get a different side to her. I hope so. Bellamy is watching the dropship leave when Josephine comes in. She says she doesn't want to fight, but when Bellamy turns away, she pulls out a knife. Before she can stab him, though, Murphy comes in, having told Russell what Josephine was doing. Russell is horrified that Josephine has become so callous, and he tries to apologize to Bellamy for what they've done. Josephine cuts Bellamy's tether, and Bellamy lunges at Russell and starts to strangle him. But when Josephine tells him to let the violence end after killing Russell, Bellamy relents and lets Russell go. At this, Josephine hands Murphy the two wiped mind drives feel like this is like the the meat of this episode well this is definitely the emotional meat of yeah. the bellamy storyline yeah um and this is also the first time that we see them together knowing they're not married <laughs> even though it's not clark it is josephine did i cry yes i did <laughs> but bellamy like can't even look at josephine yeah um especially when she's coming to him like playing nice at least so it seems yeah it's Oof. just like he cannot even he like turns away from yeah her. he he's repelled by her and josephine was counting on that oh sure yeah yeah she knows that he's not going to be able to stomach the sight of her and that that'll buy her some time to knife him <laughs> literally yeah <laughs> in the back <laughs> um classic classic moment where both josephine and bella mutel say um shut up murphy it was a nice bit of humor. Yeah, it was nice. Infused into this very tension-filled scene. Um, I think that it was interesting that Murphy thought that Russell would be the one to reel Josephine in. Like, I, I'm not... 
entirely sure I follow that thought process about him thinking Russell wouldn't like accept what Josephine was doing when Russell was the one who killed Clark in the first place. Um, and I don't think he knows Russell enough at this point. You know, he doesn't know her or him as well as Clark knew him. Yeah. Um, so this seems like a leap to me. Yeah. It's a little bit of a disconnect, but I guess I can only explain it by thinking that to Murphy, it seems like Josephine's kind of gone rogue and Russell is like the leader of Sanctum. And I think he's just like banking on his like inherent authority to like reel her in. But that. I mean, the question is, why would Murphy think Josephine went rogue? You know, like, I don't I don't think that what she's done makes it seem like she's went rogue. We know that, you know, the things she's doing isn't quite in line with what her parents have asked her to do. But like, no one else would know that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a bit of a stretch. Maybe sure. that was in a, uh, a dropped scene. Yeah. Her being like, my dad wouldn't understand. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we can see even more, like, just Russell has almost no control over his daughter and really doesn't understand her at all. I mean, cause he asks her like, are you so callous that you wouldn't be able to recognize or you wouldn't be able to understand someone's grief for someone they loved. And it's like, dude, she just erased her oldest friend's memories. Like she's not even grieving for herself. She just lost people that she quote, like theoretically should have loved. Why would she care about someone else's? You know? I mean, I, I just think her father hasn't realized how, um, like devoid of empathy she's become oh absolutely I, you just like add this to the list of delusions that russell's got on operating under well like, and we also don't know how long of a descent this has been because i don't think that she started quite this badly in sure. her first life yeah um so maybe the more you know lives she's gotten the worse her empathy has become until finally it's just gone yeah no and uh, like and, and i think in like complete opposite you know the more times that russell kills people i think the further into his delusions that he yeah. seeks comfort. And so like the two of them together, it's just like the blind leading the blind. I mean, like talk about lack of empathy. Like she full on is willing to let her father die in this scene. Yeah. Um, even though they don't really have a guarantee that he could be brought back. Like they, they know that Abby knows how to make night blood, but they don't have, you know, the actual facts about how to do it yet. Sure. And I mean, she is clearly banking on her own manipulation of the situation and that Bellamy ultimately won't go through with it. But that's a big risk. That's a big risk. I actually think that she thinks Bellamy's going to do it. I think she doesn't ultimately care. No, I don't think she cares, but I, <laughs> I think, think she thinks he will. I think she has a big enough ego to believe that she's in control of the situation. I don't believe that she gives anyone else as much agency agency as she gives herself. Yeah. And in that sense, I think she ultimately like the best outcome would be that he gives up. And that's what I think she wants him to do. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that, I mean, honestly, like collateral damage. She doesn't care. Yeah. Um, and just like we talk about, there's so much hypocrisy going on in these episodes, but, um, you know, she's, she says violence is all they know talking about sky crew, which is just, absurd coming from somebody who murders people to continue their immortal life yeah like the violence of that act is so horrible and horrific and yet that's that's how you describe these people and and like you like say it in like a condescending way oh my god well what i mean like i think that they view violence as something really ugly and like messy but the way that they have perfected violence in a way is like they've put this like they've whitewashed it they've put this like fresh coat of paint on it yeah it looks beautiful but 
obviously underneath the wood is still rotting. Like you're still murdering people. It was a beautiful um, metaphor. Thank you. Thank you. It just came to I me. I saw that. <laughs> it was gorgeous. Um, but so, yeah, like I don't think that they consider what they do to be violence. Sure. Yeah. But that's like, it's still hypocritical. Well, yeah, that's true. Like even if they don't believe it, that's still a fact. <laughs> I, I did... You know, I really thought this scene was going to happen after Clark had been brought back because we saw the scene in the trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of wanted it to be after Clark got back because number one, I just missed Clark. And number two, I liked the idea of Clark and Bellamy like standing, or Clark and, and Murphy standing in the back and seeing Bellamy do this and being like, Bellamy, not again, you know? But really, like, I should have known because Clark seems way too nonchalant to be watching Bellamy strangle someone. Absolutely. Um, I mean, this makes so much more sense yeah. in context. I just played myself. Yeah, you, you really did. <laughs> I played myself because it was funnier the other way. But. And I, you know, just like getting to the Bellamy of it all, I love that even though it clearly pains him, he is able to recognize what Clark, what he thinks Clark would do in this situation and then ultimately honor that. I mean, it's in her memory that he he stops yeah, himself. I mean, he realizes that, like, if I kill this person, nothing will change. Yeah. Like, Clark will still be dead, and one more person will be dead, too. And this isn't what Monty wanted, and this isn't what Clark wanted. Again, violence. Monty to, you know, to do better. Yeah, so. violence begets violence. Yeah. But it's still, I love in the script, it was something like, this was, like, the hardest decision he's ever had to make was, like, letting Russell go. Absolutely. Because he really does want that vengeance. But I think, you know, vengeance ultimately is empty. Yeah, and it's, you know, short-lived. Um, I don't know what will happen when Abby finds out about Clark because, you know, obviously it's her mom and, and Abby's going to feel like this extra layer of guilt that like Clark or that, you know, Josephine, who she thought was Clark, manipulated her into showing them how to create nightblood so they could kill more people. Yeah, enabling more mur- murder. And then her realizing that that wasn't even Clark, that Clark was already dead that whole time is just like... Yeah. yeah. Well, honestly, though, you should feel guilty. I mean, you did not recognize your daughter was and, not your daughter. And this is the thing that I've been saying is like, I'm so tired of of watching Abby, in, like, wallow in her own self pity and very passive a lot of times. And um, I'm so tired of watching her feel sorry for herself. I merited or not, and just like really done with that. Yeah. Sitch. Uh, and I'm very concerned that that's where we're going, again. I, I wonder if we're actually going to see her teach them how to na- make Nightblood before she uh, figures out about Clark. I feel like they have they have to, right? Well, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know where we're going this season with this Nightblood plotline. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with Sanctum. I, I don't know what's going to happen with the Prime. I feel like it's like Chekhov's gun. Like, if you bring it up, like, you have to do it. We've said that before, and sometimes it is on the 100 and sometimes it isn't. Yeah. Um, it is really a toss-up. I, I, I would assume that she probably would would teach them, or if she doesn't, they're going to try to figure it out on their anyway. own. Anyway, yeah, because um, they have Maddie, and we do know that Maddie is being experimented on in some way later, later this on this season. season. I guess it could be in her head, but I think it's probably not. Yeah. <laughs> um. One one thing I wanted to call out is that when Josephine hands over the empty mind drives to Murphy, it feels like such a hollow victory. Like you can see on his face, he got what he wanted and it feels awful. Um, And I just am wondering like what he's thinking about in this moment. You know, like is he is he regretting anything? Is it worth it? Is the cost worth it worth it to him? And you can just sort of, I mean, like, I don't know if we, like, there's, an, a, like, a, a real answer to this, but it is, his acting is so good, and, like, it all plays over his face. 
in well, a very beautiful way. There's an in-script answer, which is that he gets it and he feels bad, but he still, I think the script specifically says he still has relief that he has the mind drives. Yeah. So I think the answer is that like he's glad he has the mind drives and he wouldn't take it back, but he doesn't like what he had to do to get them. Yeah, that's pretty on par for Murphy. <laughs> um, how do we think Amori is going to feel about what Murphy's done? Because he got two mind drives, so I'm assuming one's for her. Yeah. Uh, do we think she wants that? Do we think she's going to be able to forgive this? No. I mean, I would like I would like to say that she's grown um, over the last couple of seasons. We've seen her sort of change her sort of mode, operating mode over the last couple of seasons. I think when we met her, she was very like self, you know, survival mode person like Murphy. And they were very similar in that way. But I think she's changed and really relates to her fellow Sky Crew as her family. Um, and I, I seriously doubt whether she'd be OK with this. Yeah, I I think Amori and Murphy have a lot of similarities in the fact that they've had to compromise a lot in themselves in a selfish way to um, survive. But I don't think that is a natural state of being for Amori. I think she was forced to be that person when she was kicked out of the grounder society and she had to like survive on her own. Yeah. But I think once she found a family that accepted her, her true self really is like loyalty to her family and, and love for her family. And I don't think she would ever do anything to betray them, no matter like what the like reasoning is behind it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't disagree that Murphy, you know, was smart in some ways doing this and like being on Josephine's side. Um, but I just, I don't think that Amori is going to accept the fact that Murphy did this for immortality I, I don't think she's going to be able to forgive it or at least I think it'll take a while yeah I agree Xavier pours tree sap over Octavia's arm but while it's stopping the spreading aging it's not actually healing her arm Xavier tells Octavia that she has a day maybe two to live and at that Octavia tells him to cut off her arm but before they go any further Xavier notices her arms movements and wants to try something he lets her scrape her hand or he lets her scrape a rock against a boulder and they all realize that her hand is moving in a logarithmic spiral a message from the anomaly calling her just like it did to him he says showing her a spiral tattoo on his chest Diosa then shows them that she's been drawing spiral after spiral in her notebook as well. Guess they'd better see what the anomaly wants. Indeed. Indeed. Cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, it really is a testament to the show again when Octavia was like to Xavier, cut off my arm. I like legit for a moment was like, oh shit, they're going to cut off her arm. I, I thought so too. <laughs> like this show would definitely cut off Octavia's arm. For sure. Like there was no <laughs> doubt in my mind is like if they're, they could definitely do this. Yeah, I, I was convinced for like two seconds. Two seconds. And then they like moved on yeah, from that. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but the biggest thing we get in this scene is that the anomaly wants, it has a want yep. because it must be in some way sentient. Yeah. And I, I think that it'll be a sentience that we don't, we're not really able to conceptualize or understand because it's so different from like a human sentience. But sure. I do think that it is not an inanimate object or like a weather phenomenon or anything like Yeah. This like is that. not like meteorological yeah. or only meteorological. But it definitely has some sort of, like, intelligence yeah. um, to it, which is awesome because that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted. I'm so, so 
excited. The swirly do is live. <laughs> like there's honestly so much in the next two episodes that I am thrilled to see. I can't decide what I want to see more Clark coming back or the anomaly. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I, like, there's so many things. I mean, also it's so cool. Like we were, you know, I, we were talking about at the beginning of the season, you know, when we saw the new opening credits, I was, and I was saying to you, like, I can't wait to see how all the Easter eggs that are like embedded into the opening credits are going to manifest in this season or coming seasons. And this is one of them. Like we see this logarithmic shape, the mm-hmm. spiral in the opening credits and it is the swirly do. And it's, it's the, the, the Fibonacci spiral. Yeah. It's the Fibonacci spiral. It's also on the floor uh, of the, the reliquary, reliquary room. Um, and so I, I, you know, I feel like all of these things are obviously tied together and I can't wait to find out how. Well, something that was actually also in like an Easter egg in the credits that we haven't talked about yet huh. is um, all of the writing in the credits. It like starts off as symbols and it like um, turns into like people's names. Uh, and those symbols are the same symbols that we see in the mind drives. It's like, oh. I, I don't know what kind oh, of like, language it's it like is. Code. It's like a made up. It's like mind code. Um, you know, like in the flash, they have like time language. Yeah. I think that this code is like some sort of mind language. Interesting. That they have. Interesting. I don't know if that's going to, you know, play any sort of role later on, but that was a really cool thing I saw um, on the screen when they were erasing the Lee's memory drives. Yeah. Cool. Um, I am curious exactly how Xavier got this tattoo. Was it like him being like, oh, I really love a spiral. Like, I just can't get that out of my mind. So please yeah. tattoo that dude. Uh, or was it like given to him in some way like, or like did tattooed he like on him yeah. yeah or did he like wake up <laughs> with, with like, a, tattoo. a tattoo needle in his arm and like having tattooed himself like yeah I don't know it might be just like similar to what happened to Dioza where she like was affected by the the temporal flare and then drawing it over and over and he decided to draw it get it drawn on his body well what's interesting is we haven't seen anyone in this culture with tattoos like yeah. that doesn't seem to be a thing they do no at least unless I'm, you know, just missing Not something. Missing. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I think we'll find out, though. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe we'll find out. Um, but yeah, yeah, I just, I love the idea that the anomaly sees something special in all three of these people, and that's what brought them together. Like, this is really cool, and I just am so into this plot line. Well, I wonder if it's seeing something special or if it's seeing something like, these people need me. They need me. I mean, either way, I think way. <laughs> I think those two things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just think that the anomaly wants to show them something, and it's like, what are you going to show us? Or maybe see something in them, like they are all like rebellious, upstart kind of forthright people, and mm-hmm. they need, and he has a plan for them to help the people of Sanctum. Like maybe, maybe he like is alt- very altruistic. Maybe he's like, I've just been sitting here chilling in these woods, and you guys are making a real mess of things. I mean, like, so I need to start cleaning yeah, up house. I mean, like maybe he's like God, and like the anomaly yeah. is like, you know, the burning bush. <laughs> Moses. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a very human thing to go onto this planet and to not see anything that looks like us, and so we assume that there's nothing smart or sentient on this planet, and then to realize that there would be this like higher being who's much more evolved beyond you know humanity on this planet like orchestrating things in a way um that humans might not even notice yeah or could interpret yeah yeah it's so cool uh but i mean guys i i just freaking love this team up this threesome so much i'm i like who would have thought that 
this would be what I needed was like Octavia, Dioza, and Grounder Boy on I mean, a mission together. The Grounder Boy is really like the, the key ingredient here because we <laughs> knew from last season that Dioza and Octavia together was going to be magic. Yeah, but I didn't know it was going to be this good. I I'm did. so so into it this is everything i wanted it to be well, this is everything i wanted it, it, to it, be. it fulfilled its promise but i think i didn't trust the show as much after last season to like give me this yeah okay but that's this fair. is this is everything that i ever could have wanted yeah no the the promise fulfilled on this one yeah check mark <laughs> Echo comes into the tavern to see Bellamy sitting there all alone. He tells her that Clark is dead, and when she asks when they're going to attack, Bellamy tells her they are not. Then Maddie comes downstairs, and Bellamy has to tell her what happened to Clark. Later, Bellamy sits on the edge of a pond by himself, crying. Oh my god, it was hard. <laughs> it was real rough. <laughs> Uh, but I love one supportive girlfriend who is like ready to go to war because her boyfriend's soulmate was murdered. Yep. <laughs> yep. She's like, the she best. Didn't, she didn't even hesitate. <laughs> who, when do we attack? I just, I appreciate her so much. And I, I almost wish that we'd gotten a little bit more of her in like earlier seasons. Um, just because I, I felt so blah about her up until last season. And then like all of a sudden I was obsessed with her. And I think that's because they really started, you know, writing her with care in a way that I'm not sure they did before. Like, oh, I absolutely. I felt like there could have been depth um, in seasons four and three and even two. Like I, I could see it there under the surface, but we weren't really digging too deeply into that, which I get they had a lot going on. But I think Echo is just a really fun character to mine and I wish that we'd started earlier yeah I totally understand that um it was odd when Echo came in though the first words were like what was going on like she knew what was going on (laughs) yeah like it was it was just I don't know it was an odd choice the only thing I can think of is maybe um she like ran into Jordan outside and he gave her the rundown Jordan's like not in this episode he's just somewhere else yeah I think we were talking about this offline but I feel like this has got to be one of those things where they like cut the trim the fat off of this yeah. and there there are like some connective tissues between the scenes that we're just not getting because she just she wanders into the tavern really casually and like before she thought they were like holding Bellamy captive or killing him or something and, and so yeah. it just there was definitely a disconnect yeah, yeah there's something missing here and I I did actually really respect the choice that the director made to pan away from Bellamy as he's like telling Maddie the bad news you know they shoot this from the distance like outside of the tavern actually and that feels right because this is like a private intimate moment and there would have been no way to televise this without cheapening it um so I really did like this decision I thought that was that was true and that felt real um and I also love that it's Bellamy is the one to tell her um yeah I mean these are the two people who care about Clark the most aside from her mother who's not showing it right now but um I I will say this could have just been another cutting issue but it felt very quick to me of like Bellamy saying Maddie I have to tell you something and then like two seconds later Maddie was hugging him I just it didn't feel like Maddie would have accepted it that quickly yeah I don't know if this is like a cutting and editing issue or just like she's a young actor and like maybe didn't take a beat but I agree with you. I, felt- I think it's more likely that it was a cutting thing just because we've seen how good of an actress she oh, is. Oh, yeah. No, that was not a diss on, on her at all. I just think that, you know, a lot of go- a lot goes into this. And I think that either the director could have been like, you know what? Take a beat, process what he just said, and then lean in for the hug. Well, and- like, for me, it would have been like, 
I wanted her to pull away, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't believe you. And then like her having to process it. Yeah. Um, but her just immediately hugging him. It was like, you accepted it too fast. So fast. Yeah. Like if someone told me that someone I loved was dead, it would take me longer than that. Well, to, maybe like, she'd been it. like thinking about it like all day. Cause Clark's been gone. I don't think so. I don't think Maddie has any idea what's happening. In fact, I don't even think she knows about the body snatching. No, she doesn't. So like, I just, I just don't think that she, it could possibly have yeah. guessed this. I was playing devil's advocate. I don't think so either. <laughs> also, just throw out, oh my God, when Bellamy cries, I cry. It's instantaneous. His look of grief is yeah. so real. I actually did tear up a little bit I when did he too. was sitting by himself. He just, it was, it was rough. Choked up. And I mean, what was so hard here and what was so different from the reaction that he had at the end of season four when he thought Clark was dead, was it like when season four happened and she stayed behind on the planet she was sacrificing herself to save them. And that hits in a very different way than her being like taken from them and murdered against sure. her will. Sure. Because he can be a piece with something that was her own choice. Yeah. And that was her decision. But this was not her choice. And the unfairness of it is so horrific. Yeah. You know, you can't, there's, there's no way to, to, to reconcile or grapple with that. I mean, that's just yeah pain. Yeah. Do we think that, any of them know about Murphy helping Josephine yet? I don't think so. Not yet. I think they do know about Murphy helping Josephine, but I think the real kicker is going to be when they find out about the mind drives. Like that, I think really sours the yeah. idea of Murphy. Like because before you could explain it as Murphy trying to get Josephine not to murder them all. Sure, sure, um, that's true. But when it's like for a selfish reason of like, oh, Josephine promised me immortality, yeah, to just like give up on Clark. Um, that. It hits differently. Yeah, that makes sense. That's true. Got it. Gaia goes into Maddie's room to comfort her, but finds Maddie with a knife in her hand. Gaia understands why Maddie would want revenge, but she doesn't want revenge to lead to war, right? But Maddie won't listen to her anymore, especially not with Shade Hedda in the corner of her eye urging her on. Maddie tells Gaia she's banished, that she has to go now or Maddie will kill her, and Gaia has no choice but to obey. Once Gaia is gone, Maddie asks Shade Hedda to tell her how to kill them all. And later, Josephine takes a sleeping pill and goes to bed, only for Clerk to wake up in her cell back on the ark with drawings of her life's memories all over the walls. What a great ending. Yeah, I mean, like, holy shit. happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get to that, uh, I did want to call out, it feels like a bit of an overreaction from Maddie to turn on Gaia like this. I will let it slide since she's in shock and enraged. But it just, again, I wanted a little bit more beats in this episode than we got. Uh, just felt a little rushed in some places. I think I understand it. I think what I have a harder time understanding is how the darkness, you know, Shade Hedda got such a hold on Maddie before Pre- Maddie the, learned this. Yeah. Now that Maddie has learned this, I really do understand her pushing away people who want her to be quote unquote good and like, oh yeah, fine. Like all she wants right now is to like murder. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I understand it in that way. And I, I do think like, to be fair, Gaia should have given the girl like a day to grieve before she goes in and is like, well, we should keep on training. <laughs> yeah. And then only to, you know, just to be fair to Gaia, because I think we're just going to work through this a little bit. You know, I think on Gaia's end, she's really concerned about the hold that she had already has on Maddie and what this rough revelation is going to do yeah to her and is now more than ever like the urgency of getting Shade Hedda under control surpasses her you know ability to perceive that Maddie needs time to grieve yeah um and this is just a bad situation yeah. like all around <laughs> I mean where do we think Gaia's gonna go where I don't know she go? 
there's nothing out there except for, you know, the Dioza, Octavia, Xavier threesome. <laughs> Maybe. I wouldn't I wouldn't hate that. I would not hate that. But I don't think she's going to join them there. I don't either. Um, I think she'll stay close just in case Maddie needs her. Absolutely. I think she's going to, like, sneak. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, like, near in enough time for Gaia to get her own storyline. You know, oh. I love that she's got this going on with Maddie, but I think that Gaia has so uh, much unplumbed depths to, like, you know, discover. And I, I, I want to know more about her as a person. And also, by the way, where the hell is Indra? <laughs> right? Have we talked about Indra at all this, this She's, season? She hasn't been here at all. I mean, I know she hasn't been here at all, but... Well, yeah. No, we haven't talked about the fact that, bye, ha- Indra's, like, not on the show. Maybe that's where Gaia will go. Maybe she'll, like... Well, I guess she can't hop on the dropship because it already went up to the mothership. So I don't know. Maybe it'll come back and then she'll leave back on it. Yeah, but like Maddie like banished her, which I'm assuming means like you're banished from. Well, we don't know what banishment means. Well, banishment means you're banished from like our culture. (laughs) Banishment means you're banished. Yeah, I mean, like in this case, it's like, well, this isn't really your culture or your city, but yet you, you know, you still in Gaia's mind have the power here, so. Yeah, maybe maybe banishment just means like you're you're banished from my room, from you my house. Come in. You're you're outside of Sky Crew. Maybe she'll just hang out in Sanctum. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but switching gears to Shade Hedda, do we think that Shade Hedda has a plan for Maddie to get revenge, or is it just like he's going to coach her how to kill people? You know, I don't know. I have no idea. What do you think? Well, she says, "Tell me how to kill them all." So I feel like he's got to, like... I mean, the whole point of the flame is to give strategic guidance, right? Yeah. Like, that's why the commanders are there, is like, here's what I've done in the past, here's what worked, and here's what didn't. Mm -hmm. So I would guess it has to be something strategic in that way. Yeah, I mean, I I think in, like, the most obvious sense, he probably murdered a bunch of people when he was... (laughs) commander and he's gonna be like well here's how i did it here's the best ways i found to murder people yeah <laughs> that's what i think yeah i don't know i it's guess it's not we'll good <laughs> whatever we it is we really need clark to get her butt back here right now it's not good <laughs> <laughs> okay let's switch gears to this last nugget of the episode uh-huh um where josephine finally decides to go to sleep and uh drugs herself to go to bed mm-hmm um, before she does that, she does this whole tea ceremony uh, and, you know, murmurs this mantra to herself of, you know, good today, better tomorrow. And this entire thing just reeks of cultural appropriation. I mean, it's it's just so emblematic of Josephine where she just plucks out these different pieces of humanity that interests her or fascinates her without ever embracing the like human or cultural context for their meanings. She just doesn't engage on an emotional level with anything, but only an intellectual and scientific way. Yeah. It's really, really ugly. Got nothing to say there. She really likes Mandarin. (laughs) She really does. Um, But screw Josephine. The most important part of this episode is that Clark is alive. Of course she's alive. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. But it really was nice to see her. I missed her. Oh my God, I know. I know it's only been a couple of episodes, but like, damn, Josephine is the worst trip. She's the worst. TM. (laughs) And even this tiny glimpse of her cell on the arc, you know, we got so much 
in this scene. Mm -hmm. There are drawings every. First of all, she looks exactly the same as she did in episode one. Like, great job on the makeup and costume department. A plus. Um, The drawings on the walls are so significant. You know, you zoom in, we see Abby, we see Lexa, we see Bellamy. They are equally prominent. Take that. Well, I mean, I think we see everyone in her life. Like, Roan is above her bed. There's Finn even there. We saw Wells. Wells. I know, um, but, I mean, I think we'll see much more of these drawings in yeah. the next episode. But the ones that they zoom in on in this tiny scene yeah. are really just Abby and then Lexa and Bellamy. Yeah, I mean. Which I think speaks for itself. Well, I think it was a little odd they didn't show Maddie. Um, I think it, but, but maybe it's because. But, of course, they could have cut stuff, too. We have no yeah, idea. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. But anyway, we got a lot of juicy stuff in this tiny snippet. Uh, And I guess now we do see why they kept repeating that Josephine hasn't slept yet. Yes, so I was right. You were were right in the fact that that was important that they said it. Yes. I do think that this is the first time in ever or at least a very, very, very long time that like someone hasn't gone quietly into that good night. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I I agree. And I wasn't I don't think I was seeing that, you know she doesn't want to go to sleep because she's afraid to face Clark. I was saying that she, that the fact that we haven't seen her slept sleep yet is because they're waiting to do this whole Clark thing. Yeah. I had maybe read that differently than when you were talking because it sounded to me like it was like they can't sleep early on because that's when their host consciousness is most active. And I think that that all works together. Like, I think that's also true. Well, I don't think that's true because I don't think that I think because Clark went unwillingly, yeah. that's why she's still fighting to be there. Um, You know, Delilah, probably is gone now yeah um well we don't know we can speculate we don't know but given what's coming for clark um given what we've seen even in the promo we know that um memories are disappearing like in the promo we see memories like disappearing from the wall of drawings sure so i think clark is slowly losing herself and i don't think that she'll last very long right um i think that's all true but I guess I guess we'll see. I can't wait. Oh my god! I I I cannot wait. Oh my god! I'm so excited, especially to see Clark and Josephine face off. Ugh, it's gonna be great. Yeah, I can't wait. Eliza, mm-hmm. her Emmy is just waiting for her right there. It's about time for Josephine to get her ass kicked. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, that was our episode, or I guess I should say our recap. Let's move into some discussion points, and we're going to go through these really quickly. Um, it's mostly just going to be me talking. Um, so let's talk about some of the title meanings in this episode. Memento Mori is Latin, and the definition of it is literally, remember that you will die, and is also the medieval Latin Christian theory and practice of reflection on mortality, especially as a means of considering the vanity of earthly life and the transient nature of all earthly goods and pursuits. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a Very long, pedantic, a long wordy definition or definition that basically means it's a practice of reflecting on the um on the transience of life and the pursuit of things that are otherworldly that there are more important things than your mortal coil basically it is hamlet's skull it is hamlet's skull. that is what hamlet's skull is memento mori is that something is that is like an object that represents death yes so. Yes, that's a very succinct way of putting it. Um, and there are a couple of different ways that this title is incorporated into this episode. I think the most literal are all of Riker's keepsakes, or all of these like little knickknacks that he keeps on holding onto that yeah. are symbols of the people that have died for him. Um, 
What a keeper. <laughs> Great job, Riker. And then I think, you know, a little bit more lofty and literal and literary is this, like, Josephine and Murphy's pursuit of immortality. You know, I think that their um, focus on, on, on living and staying on the earthly plane is ultimately their is going to be their downfall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a negative force in this episode, and the inverse of that is the the value and sanctity placed on life, and we see that you know with Xavier, with Octavia's imminent death caused by the temporal flare, the fact that the flare itself is like caught up with the idea of age and and age leading to death I mean there are all these different forces playing out in this episode that are sort of indicating that this this pursuit of immortality is corruptive um and ultimately I think that's true yeah so let's talk about our favorite lines yeah what was yours mine was (laughs) so when do we attack by echo my love (laughs) my fave um I just I don't know I just really love how supportive Echo is of Bellamy's emotions and like her knowing that like oh someone hurt Clark let's go kill him yeah (laughs) I love how how well she knows him and knows what he needs yeah she is very aware of what he needs or at least what she thinks he needs what he's yeah he he's already been through this whole journey this episode Echo you couldn't have known (laughs) yeah no nobody blames you for coming in late you're uh, busy. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? So my favorite line um, is when Xavier tells Octavia that this the sap isn't working because, you know, I guess because you don't heal old age, which was like a profound. I don't think it was meant to be as profound as I am interpreting <laughs> it to be. But when I, re- I when I heard it, I like literally something like unlocked in my mind. And I was like, that's true. Like age isn't something that you run away from. Age isn't something that's that's bad or wrong that you need to heal age is a fact of life and it happens to everybody um obviously the way that it's happening to Octavia isn't ideal or like (laughs) normal but it makes sense to me that the sap wouldn't cure it because it's ultimately not something that needs to be cured you know I think of this in the context of like the way that we get plastic surgery and the way that you know we are so afraid to look older as we age but age is beautiful age shows like all the scars and and track marks of our life and that we've like lived long enough to 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 bear them like I this was like so interesting to me that's very sweet for you to say as you know 30 year olds but uh I'm gonna say when I'm about 50 I'll be bathing in the blood of virgins to look young (laughs) so I mean I I I just can't I I get it I get it (laughs) I don't know I mean like I always talk about this with my my parents because I'm from Los Angeles and there's a lot of plastic surgery and a lot of hair dyeing and all of those things, which I, you know, whatever, I don't judge. If it makes you happy, you should do it. And I think if you're uncomfortable with the way that you look, I don't think that you should suffer every day just because that's the way you were born with it. We have the means to fix it and you should fix it. And I 100% approve of that. And I don't, it doesn't bother me at all when other people do it. But personally, I've never felt that need and well, there are plenty of things that again, I could I fix. Will say you're only 30. <laughs> true. Let's talk in 20 years. But <laughs> anyway, if for anyone who's grown up in Los Angeles, I think you understand what I mean when I say <laughs> it's a huge difference. I just think it's hard to really understand how you're going to feel in old age when we are so young at this point. Um, and I, I would agree that, you know, you don't heal old age like that it's something that's natural um and I think a lot of it is just our society's beauty standards that yeah. you know force us to see these things as ugly but and also the the ultimate like op- 
obsolescence of women past a certain age. Oh, yeah. You know, I like the idea of embracing yourself in all of your ages and all of your forms, despite the fact that, you know, society tells you that after you're 40, you're no longer important or worthy. Well, yeah, like, that's why it's hard, though, because society is telling you that, and sometimes to, you know, get respect and to get recognition, you have to adhere to society's standards you yeah know? like but it's, it's and again it's whatever your personal choice is I'm not like shaming anyone at all I just I like this idea as like a sentiment yeah I, I completely agree and yeah I just like Xavier yeah <laughs> he's so smart I love him he's very wise he is very wise probably because he's lived too many years. lives <laughs> but wouldn't it be great if he was just young and wise yes yes it would um all right what's your favorite scene um, I had a hard time with this because I don't want to feel like I'm disrespecting Eliza Taylor and like the work that she's been doing with Josephine. Absolutely. Because it's been amazing. Um, so I, I had a hard time choosing between Bellamy confronting Josephine and Russell at the end and like strangling um, Russell or Dioza and Octavia uh, realizing that they're being called to the anomaly just like Davier was. And after some real soul searching, mm. I, I had to go with the Dioza, Octavia, Xavier stuff just because I, I'm i really excited by the Anomaly plotline and I really love their interactions together. Um, and it's something that I didn't expect the three of them together. And I, 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 I can't get over like every scene they're in. I'm like, I am fully invested in this plotline. Um, that said, though, Bob Morley did amazing. Eliza is amazing it was a great scene when he was strangling russell yeah so that's where i landed but it was a hard choice i completely understand that and i think okay so spoiler my favorite scene um is a two-parter both of the raven and Riker scenes i just like the catharsis for me in that moment both of them were just palpable yeah um and i it just was my favorite just unquestionably but i will say that i think it's interesting that both of our favorite scenes have to do with the characters that we have been the most frustrated with so far like octavia's arc thus far and her journey this season in particular has been so satisfying to watch and i think that's why we gravitate to her scene so much because it's just such a relief to finally get this kind of momentum that we've been waiting for for six years and with raven especially you know i've been so frustrated with her kind of this like stagnant station she's been in you know harping on clark this whole season and to finally get her to just like blow her top and be righteous in a way that I agree with <laughs> feels so good. Yeah. Um, that it's unfortunate because I think Bellamy and Clark, all of their scenes are excellent always. Yeah. You know, there's no room for them to get better. I mean, I have a sneaking suspicion that an Eliza Taylor scene will be my favorite next episode. Oh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that'll happen. And I think when Clark returns to herself and the Bellark reuni- reunitedness I happens, can't think about it right like, now. <laughs> I'm, pr- I'm going to say that right now. <laughs> You're They're calling it now. Calling it now. That's my favorite scene of the season. So anyway. I don't know. Sometimes the writers let me down. You know, I especially think especially with Bellark. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So my poor let's little not get our heart too much. <laughs> oh my god, you guys! It's been a journey. <laughs> anyway, okay, moving on. This bit is going to be very quick, but I did just want to spend some time talking about the costumes on this show because Ken asked me to, and I'm more than happy to comply. Um, Sarah, you can turn your headsets off now, go into the other room, take a shower, whatever you want. <laughs> um, we'll be back, guys. She has goodbye. nothing to add to this. Maybe you do. Maybe there's something. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, okay. So let me just like start off by saying that 
the costuming in the season overall is indicative of the costuming in the show, which I should say is exemplary. Like, it's fantastic. The costume designers do such a great job of incorporating visual cues that we understand in our society and then elevating them in a way and repurposing them in a way that makes sense for a dystopian uh, landscape. Um, they're geniuses, and I only only respect for these people who I like <laughs> deeply deeply love their work um this season in particular I think there's some really interesting things going on I think the most important thing that they had to establish going into this new season but also this new book right I mean this there's we are closing the chapter on book one we're opening flipping open the page into book two we need to establish and by we, I mean them, a new visual vocabulary for this season of what the look is. And this goes hand in hand with set design. Set design and costume design are different departments, but they work really closely to create a holistic and comprehensive look for the Aesthetic. show. Aesthetic, if you will. Um, and we needed it to contrast with what we've already seen in the first five seasons, specifically with the arc and the grounder culture and even the mountain wet mount weather people yeah um there we have like three signature looks that we've been working with so far and that we need to we need to go in a completely opposite direction and establish that this this is a human society but has been separated from our socialization for more than 200 years and there are some really really excellent examples of this i think the best example that they did the, that are most successful is the sanctum royalty we have these beautiful garments these rich colors expensive fabrics the tailoring on all of them is so precise. Their blends of Western and Eastern imagery of royalty. You think of the crowns, the beautiful headpieces, all of this heavy, rich gold that is seen across Russell, Simone, Priya, any of them. I mean, it's just the beautiful, beautiful handiwork and craftsmanship on top of great character design. And the fact that each character has their own signature look, I think, is really, really important, you know. Russell has all of these like crowns and these high neck collars and it makes him look really regal and almost imperialistic and Simone has this these very flowing but like high collared it's very quaffed quaffed like look and you know you she feels like she looks very tense she's a very intense look and that matches her personality and then also on the flip side of that you have the the people of Sanctum the Knolls that we learned in this episode um, that are in a very different look, but still work within the aesthetic that we're operating within. And that's like the general population clothing. And that is much rougher fabrics. The dyes are not well, you know, they're much lighter. They're much more pastels, which means they don't have, they can't afford to do really expensive dyeing work. Yeah, a lot of pigment. A lot have. of pigment washes out. It means they've been washed over and over and they can't afford to replace their clothing as much and the tailoring is very bland you know there's just like a lot of drapery that's not really fitted or tailored to the body form it's mass produced um and a lot of the colors show up in multiple people across multiple families which means they're buying them in mass and that there's a specific person who's like making these clothes for all of the people and they're not tailored to an individual like the royalty is but they're tailored but they're created just to to outfit an entire population with little form or a care for identity. Um, so, oh my God, what a great, what a great job. Like, holy shit, this is so good. Um, and also, I just wanted to mention that the coloring, the pastel colors that they work with for the population and then the set design is very reminiscent of like 70s sepia and Jonestown and all of these cults that kind of existed in the 70s. Um, these like, this sort of like hippy dippy, you know, 
Again, it's Star Trek, guys. Yeah, it's... They, they definitely brought in Star Trek aesthetic into this show because they were working with, like, a new planet and a new society that's, like, seemingly very beautiful on the on the front, you know, on the part facade. of it. But then yeah. you, like, see the, the rod underneath, and that is such a Star Trek concept, so... Look at you. You have something to say. Well, it's always Star Trek. I'll yeah. just bring that in because I've said it, like, 12 times I, on this, I love this it. season. So, less successful... I think are some of the things that they 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 clearly have only so much budget and they ran out of budget when it came to the guards costume design and then the set design for all of the computer generated shots and I think they're trying to blend some of the con- computer generated um, some of like the 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 way that the castle is built and like the weird shapes of the doors and the windows and all of that like kind of these like really rich gemstones and the shapes of the the soldiers um, epithets on their shoulders and like the way that the soldiers um, their like lines of their clothing follow are very similar to the lines of the castle and like their window designs I just don't think it looks very good I think it looks a little cheap um, it looks a little cartoony to me um, Ken also pointed this out good I Ken I will say I have no idea what you're talking it's about. It's fine. I have not looked at the guards' clothing at all. It's okay. That's what <laughs> so I'm here for. So for those of you who haven't either, it's okay. But to that's, miss why it. that's why we're talking <laughs> about <Yes>. this because <laughs> like I can't stop looking at this. This is like half the time. This is what I'm looking at, and then I'm like, I didn't even notice they said this thing because I was busy looking at their clothes. Um, so yeah, that's I think an example of where they like didn't spend so much of their time and budget, which makes sense because these are ancillary characters and they're on the periphery of the sets, and they spent most of their budget and consideration on the main characters and the rest of the of the um extras which Mm -hmm. i'm fine with so you know what all good things and then my last comment uh is just the uh, major contrast to the sky crew clothing which for all of the the entire series has been very dark mostly black and gray clothes with a hybrid of functionality and armor mixed and it's all been recycled so we see these like leather jackets that have studs on them that are meant to be you know like almost like armor well they have uh the pop tabs yes the soda can tabs that are like you know on on clark's leather jacket yes like repurposed items yeah they're all repurposed it's all recycled they're remnants of this old society that was burned away in the first apocalypse um and so I love I love watching them use all of these materials that would be available to them and repurpose them in like a new kind of military um survivalist mode kind of Mm -hmm. way and how much how badly that contrasts with this like very pastel you know lollipop colored society on Sanctum yeah it looks great and that is what I have to say about costuming and if anybody ever wants to talk to me about this please find me at B Perlman 89 as you can see she could go on for, for a very literally long time. ever <laughs> but we don't have time for that let's uh do the next episode preview Kay. the next episode is 607 never mind in this episode Clark's past catches up to her um and I just wanted to note too that Kim Shunway wrote this episode she also wrote Nevermore, which was my favorite episode ever back in season three coincidence so like that was kind of the interesting like Nevermore, never mind like that was definitely done on purpose and sure. I wonder if we're going to get some of those same things that I loved about Nevermore, which was that people were being called out for their shit. I I think in this episode, Clark is going to call herself out for her shit, but then also like deal with that shit. You know what yeah. I mean? I think I, I'm hoping 
that this is going to be Clark dealing with her demons. And I cannot wait for the like the just the like interplay between like never mind, like forget about it, yeah. and then like the never mind, like mind. in your mind. <laughs> so ready. Um, Love me a good pun. <laughs> we all know. I mean, if you've even seen the IMDb page, we know that Clark's dad is being brought back for this episode. But I am not sure if we get any other cameos. Yeah. And I really hope we do. Um, they have so many people who they've killed in the last five and a half seasons that could be brought back for this in different ways. And I, I really hope that they're able to go for it because when you're, you know, having this sort of like mind journey like that is something that I think you should be doing on a TV show like this is like sure. bringing up cameos that help really nail in the emotional aspect of it. Absolutely. Um, like, like I said earlier, like I hope Monty comes back. Yeah. Um, Wells. I always, well, I, let's I be doubt honest. It. Wells is not coming back. Like they did, they did put a drawing of him on the wall. That's about as much as we're ever going to get. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be floored if they brought back Lexa. I don't think they will, I just because it's like a little bit still too, too political. Soon. Too soon. Um, but I could see them thinking it would be a good idea. I could also see them bringing back Jasper. I could see them bringing back Jasper yeah. for sure. Um, but anyway, so I guess we'll see. Um, but I hope there's someone. I I am a little bit disappointed that this episode isn't all in Clark's head. We saw um, a screenshot released of Bellamy with like a notebook taking notes. And I'm assuming that's not in Clark's head. Um, so there's some part of it that's happening outside. Before, though, I was thinking, oh, this is all in Clark's head. Then we won't get her back maybe until episode eight. But now, because this isn't all in Clark's head, I do think we'll get her back next episode by the I end. I really hope so. Um, just because I don't think that they're going to be able to, um, like, Josephine and Clark won't be able to, like, keep their minds separate for more than an episode. Yeah, I agree. So, fingers crossed, Clark comes back at the end of next episode. But, like, if that doesn't happen, it will be in episode eight, right? Uh, yeah. Either seven or eight. Yeah. it's It's got to be. Okay only a couple more episodes to go i miss her i miss her too and that is our episode if you would like to get in touch with us you can you can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com that's s-k-a-i-c-a-s-t-k-r-u at gmail.com and you can tweet at us at skycast you can also tweet at us at our own twitter accounts i am at b perlman 89 and i'm at sarah r mccabe and that is our episode so until next time may we meet again may we meet again bye, bye guys, guys.